hey everyone, Merry Christmas. I even, I even took the time to decorate this year. It's gonna be an amazing show. I got a whole crew of friends coming by. People are gonna be stopping in. We're gonna be talking about this year we're finishing up. We're gonna be talking about the year that's coming ahead of us. We're gonna have a great time. I'm glad that you were able to come in and join me live. And let's get this going right now. Let's, let's kick it off. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. All right. Now, if any of you have seen any of the past year's Christmas Eve specials, you know that I like to have a lot of my small business friends pop by and say hello. And so let's get things kicked off with the host of a couple of fantastic podcasts. Let's welcome to the stage, Mr. Rocky Lalvani. How you doing, Rocky? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it's great to see you. And I like the outfit. You wore a special sweater today. I did. It's Christmas. I figured it was a Christmas show. When else can I wear this? The one time a year. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I took the time to decorate the, the, the office this year. I'm joined by a co-host this year. We'll get into his backstory a little bit later. But um, uh, we had a great time because you and I were able to meet up in New Orleans this year back in October. Um, why don't you give people uh, an idea of, of who you are? And I did mention that you have a couple of podcasts. Let's talk about those. So I work with small business owners to sit in the financial seat because a lot of them, well, they do what they love and looking at the numbers isn't always at the top of the list. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's got to look at the numbers. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in financial trouble. So would you would you call yourself like a fractional CFO? Yes, I would say I'm a fractional CFO. We also help people implement profit first. Um, but I think what makes us really different compared to what most people think about financial people, we don't, I mean, we'll look backwards, but our focus is forward. Like, what do we need to do today to make more money tomorrow? And I think that's really the big difference. Yeah, yeah. And, and today, I want to talk about some of that forward looking view. Um, because of course we're, we're here at the end of the year and, and, you know, if they haven't started already very shortly, a lot of different people in the media are going to be giving their predictions about what's going to be happening here for 2024. And so, uh, do you have any bits of advice? Yes. So first, do you have a, and I, when I say you, I don't mean you, David, I mean you, the listener, do you have a prediction for what's going to happen in your business in 2024? You mind if I tell a story? Go ahead. So, David, imagine 2023 record year, blowout. Everything's wonderful, right? You decide you're going to take your son. You're going to go and you're going to the islands. You're having a wonderful time. 
you get on the airplane. Of course, David, I know you're sitting in first class, right? They bring you your drink. Life is good at this moment, right? Everybody boards. You're, you're settled in and happy. And all of a sudden, when, when you think everything's ready, you see the pilot come run on the plane. He jumps into the cockpit and he immediately gets on, says, sorry, I'm late. I hit traffic. I, I know that the plane is in good condition because I trust all the people around me, but I didn't have time for the checklist. And I know you all want to get to your holiday destination. So we're just going to skip that today. All right. I'm not sure where we're going, but I promise you the moment we get up in the air, I will figure it out and we'll get you there safely. And, and he looks over at the co-pilot. He's like, what kind of plane is this? This cockpit looks a little <laughs> different than what I'm used to flying in. David, are you staying on the plane? Or are you running? <clears throat> well, funny enough, when I was on my way to New Orleans this year, I had to change planes twice on, because it's, you know, it was a long journey to get there. And in one of the airports that I was changing at, they started loading the plane and funny enough, the, the co-pilot hit something on their checklist that they weren't happy with and they stopped loading the plane and they made everyone get off and other people started to grumble about it. And I said to a person next to me, I said, you're complaining that the pilot found something wrong with the plane before we got on. <laughs> like <laughs> Better than in midair, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But let me ask you a question. You're all running a business. Do you even have a cockpit? Do you even have a dashboard to run your business mm. on? Do, do you know where you're going? Do you know what all the instruments are telling you? And are you getting early warning signals in your business to say, hey, there's a problem with leads. Hey, there's a problem with sales conversion. Hey, there's a problem with cost of goods. Hey, there's a problem over here with yeah. cash flow. If you don't have all of that, then you're probably going to be in trouble. So what, what you're talking about is some kind of, of forecast or budget for the next year? Correct. Well, not only just a forecast and a budget, but also understanding all the different metrics hmm. and having systems in place. So it's not September and you're like, what happened to sales? It's like, it's March. Hey, all of a sudden, leads stopped working. What changed? Why aren't? Why isn't the phone ringing? You're so busy doing what you're doing, you might not notice those subtle changes. And let's face it, you know, social media changes algorithms. Maybe a new competitor came in. Maybe just something happened with your marketing and, and it wasn't going out like it was supposed to or somebody forgot to pay a bill and so they turned it off. Who knows? There's a million things that happen in business. Yeah. But if you're not aware, then we've got a problem. You know, it, it's interesting because um, every month, you know, when it's when we get, you know, just past the end of the month and the final, you know, bank charges hit the, the statement and everything, um, I make sure that the statement is reconciled versus my um, bookkeeping system that I use. And so I start to do a bunch of checks. So one of the things I'll do, for example, is I'll check the most recent balance sheet versus the month before. Then I'll also check the most recent balance sheet versus last year. And I'll check the income statement year to date and then the income statement year to date for the same period in the prior year. 
And, and, and I just want to see all these different ways of how the current period is measuring up versus last month or the same time frame the year before, just to see if I'm on track for where I'm expecting to go. How many people do you know who do what you just said? Oh, I, I ask people and nobody ever does that. <laughs> exactly. They're flying blind. Yeah. 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 I, I, and I'll add one more to you is how are you doing versus your goal for what the balance sheet should have been or what the income statement should have been? So, yes, it's always good to see where are we year to date, where are we compared to last year, but where are we compared to what we, back in December of 23, said we were going to do yeah. nine months from now? It, it's interesting. It's interesting because, um, you know, for a lot of businesses, they'll create a budget going forward, like a sales forecast or a budget of the year they expect to have coming up. And whenever I was working in big businesses, we always had this kind of tool. Uh, mm -hmm. That was that was part of what was was put onto our department. Um, in my own business, though, you know, I think that I focus more on some of the other metrics rather than rather than having a sales forecast. I'm, I'm focused more on things like audience growth, number of inquiries, like some of those other key things. And I, because I think I know that if I take care of that stuff, you know, the sales should continue. I mean, that, and maybe I'm not doing it quite as well as I probably know that I should. But, you know, so what camp do I fall into with that respect? So I think that is very important. What you're doing is, although you're not, I mean, you are, but you aren't. You're, you're taking the end result and then you're working backward to figure out what are the metrics that will drive that result. So going back mm -hmm. to the cockpit analogy, right? What what altitude do I need to be flying at, right? Am I going up or down? How fast am I going? Those are all metrics within your business that if done correctly should result in what you expect at the end of the day. And so you are doing like that. That is one way to do it. The question is, did you actually get the end result you expected from those metrics? You're, you're like me. We're, we're small. Once you start to get a little bit bigger, if a part of that process breaks and you don't know it, you won't get the result. For example, you might say, OK, I'm going to grow my audience. All right. Well, the audience grew, but it didn't convert. Hmm. Why didn't it convert? Oh, my sales guy. Well, he got on the plane and he went away for six months and I like, you know what I mean? In a sense, he stopped working and I didn't realize that because I didn't finish counting all the metrics to the end goal. So, so what kind of sort of target do you think most small business people should be making for the coming year? Do you, do you believe in a, a certain percentage growth or do you believe in trying to strategize about how certain efforts might lead to certain expansions of their business and, and then, try to work back from that logical conclusion? Like what, what sort of is the best process do you think, Rocky? I, I think the best thing is decide what you want from your business to serve your life mm -hmm. and then work backwards from there. However, let's be realistic. You know, if I sold half a million last year, unless you're on some kind of growth trajectory, don't tell me you're going to do 2 million this year, mm. right? Like be realistic and look at industry trends and look at what's been happening. So we're in December. How are the last three months? Is it a seasonal business, not a seasonal? I think there's a bunch of metrics to say, 
do I have a reasonable growth goal? Yeah. Well, wasn't it popular for a while? Just say you're going to do 10 times the revenue. Aren't there a bunch of books like that? You mean like this one? But this one's different. This oh. one's 10x is easier than 2x. <laughs> so that that is a different concept because I think most people are grind, kill. Bleh. It's think differently about your business. I've Don't heard of that grind. book. Is it is it good? Did you finish it yet? Oh, yeah. I finished it long ago. Um, I can sum that whole book up very, very simply. If you want to grow your business 10%, 20%, 50 or 100, you're essentially in the mode of thinking, how do I grind it out? What do I have to do more, more, more? You're talking about incremental iteration. Yeah. When you're trying to do that. Yeah. Correct. But if I say to you, I need to grow my business 10x, it's no longer incremental. You've got to change everything you do and how you think about your business. And so it's about taking the time to say, how do I think about what does that new business look like at 10x? And how do I do things differently? It's not about grinding. It's about thinking. And, and yeah. that's literally what it comes down to, which most people don't do. You, you might need to completely reorganize how your business does business and the way you deliver. If you Correct. want to start to think about uh, uh, a new way to leverage the efforts in your business to get to that kind of really high revenue or, or earnings target. Correct. You might have to redo your products. You might have to redo your markets. You're going to have to think vastly differently than what you're currently doing and for incremental growth. And that's not to say that it's good or bad. I think people should really consider, do I really want to 10X? And I think that's one of the fallacies. I, I can tell you, I have no desire for 10X. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want to do that work and I don't want to deal with that obligation. A business is a vehicle where you can support yourself and take care of your family through service to others. And I, you know, what you said earlier about having a lifestyle goal or, or a life vision or some kind of vision of what you want your life to look like. I think, I think that is key because so often when I talk with people who, you know, will complain about being overworked or all these other kinds of things, uh, one of the things that I might ask them is, well, what did you imagine it was going to be like to work and to have your own business when you got started? And a lot of them will actually say that they imagined it was going to be a lot of hard work. Like they, they've subscribed to that hustle and grind kind of mentality and, and they end up exactly in that spot. That's what they imagine. You get what you imagine. Yeah. And be so careful. You've got you've got a couple of podcasts. You mentioned Profit Answer Man, but you've got another one, uh, Richer Soul, which is a little bit more about sort of the oh I don't know existential uh, dealings with with wealth and, and lifestyle. Once you have a business that is providing for you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the tagline is "You got rich now what?" Mm. Meaning people build this because they think it'll make them happy. And what they don't realize is the money isn't going to make you happy. So are you happy on the journey? Because if you're not happy on the journey, you're not going to be happy at the destination. Yeah. And so how do you figure out how to create harmony in your life? And harmony is right, your business is a part of it. Your family's a part of it. Friends are part of it. What you give back is part of it. Your health is a big part of it, because I think too often people give up their health for 
variety of reasons, only to then have to give up all their wealth to get their health back. Um, it's also spirituality. Like, how does that fit into your business, your life, and in what you're doing? Relationships, time management, um, all in, it goes back to, you know, you're, you're spending too much time in the business. So we look at all of these things, but we don't look at them in silos. We look at how do they all come together and intersect for you specifically? Because I don't want to live David's life. Nothing personal, David, but I have my life. But too often, everyone's trying to live somebody else's life instead of their own. Mm, yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, we've got a bunch of people that are piling in already. And it's so great to see everyone uh, show up here. We've got a few comments uh, that have already appeared in the chat. Uh, Mark Mawinney says he's looking forward to it. Mark is going to be one of the guests later on this afternoon. Uh, he also runs a podcast, Natural Born Coaches, where he helps people in their coaching businesses all over the world. We've got uh, Victor, who's tuned in from Nottingham. He says he just gave the show a like. Thank you very much, Victor. And if everyone else is watching wants to give it a like too, that would be fantastic. It's one of the ways that the algorithm knows that people are enjoying the program. We've got um, we've got people signed in from Ottawa, Ontario. We continue on. We've got uh, Desmond is down in Oakville, Ontario. Good to see you. We've got John in here from Laredo, Texas. Um, are you sure there's always an answer? In my short experience, the answer is usually we have no idea. Something changed. Maybe we have a bad day, week, month, etc. Uh, so th this obviously is relating to the performance in small businesses. Um, how long do people suffer before you think that they start to look for answers uh, from people like from people like you, Rocky? Too long. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, are there bad days? <clears throat> of course there's bad days. But when you strike out 10 times in a row, you're going to start asking a question. And, and how long are you going to keep going? So that comes back to cash flow management. Do you keep excess cash in your business? Because here's the bottom line. Time and money will solve all problems. But if you have no time and new money, then you're not going to be able to solve the problem. You're going to get in a lot more trouble than, than you need to. So, yeah, I don't think there's a perfect solution. I don't think there's this right answer that everyone's looking for. It's just be aware. You should kind of feel your business and and know it like i walk into costco there's a guy at the door with a clicker he's yeah. counting because costco wants to know how many people walked in the door how many people walked out at the register what's my average sale what happened today and then they can compare that against 20 years of history expectation a million different things we as small business owners can do something similar in a way that makes sense for us. Don't 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 get stuck in the numbers, but at least understand what's going on. It, it, it's interesting that you say that. I, I remember the the small business owner that made a huge impression on me uh, about their ability to forecast was someone who was actually running a it was a fried chicken franchise. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of preparation that goes into the chicken. You know, you, you bread the chicken, you put the herbs and seasonings, all that kind of stuff. And you have to make sure you have enough of it, you know, available for that day. And so he had this process where he was using um, the week as his basic accounting metric. Um, and he would 
look at what the sales were the week before, and then he would look at what the sales were in the same week the prior year. But he also kept logs of the weather because he noticed that the mm -hmm. weather had an impact on his sales. And so not only was he looking at what he sold the year before in this, like say week number eight, but he would also look at what the weather was in that week because then he would modify you know, his preparations based on if that year ago data was from a, a bad weather week or if it was a sunnier week and this, you know, in the present, it was going to be cloudy or something like that. And, uh, and basically, he was able to fine tune the projection of how much chicken to have ready to be able to prepare to serve to people because, of course, he didn't want to end up wasting because it, it would be very inexpensive, a very expensive input to to be throwing out. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if his business does have a weather component, then, I mean, you can kind of look at the weather for the next 10 days. You're not going to have it perfect, but the closer you get to day of, the closer you get to the reality of what it's going to be. But if I've got a 10-day look ahead, maybe I need to bring in more chicken. Maybe I need to bring in less chicken. Maybe I need to put more staff on or less staff, but I can at least be prepared for what's going to happen instead of, wow, how did that happen? I wonder what, the, you know, like, it's funny. I go, I, I remember it was a couple of years ago. I went to the store around Thanksgiving. I'm like, do you have this? They're like, no, we ran out. It's Thanksgiving. I'm like, well, duh, you know, it's Thanksgiving. It comes the same time every year. Why didn't you, you get more of it <laughs> we've got a bunch more comments from people piling in we've got uh, brunswick industrial oh that sounds like a big business it says good show dave thanks for thanks for coming along good to have you in the audience um small business success says regarding business targets and forecasts a franchise business i once owned i took the core details from their very dated operating and reporting software and had my staff fill in key variables that contained i don't know i don't know what it contained information i'm hopeful uh and we got mike who says hello from moncton new brunswick popular city i the people from moncton new brunswick are fantastic don't you agree <laughs> we we've got uh another guest here in the studio rocky have you ever oh, met cool. have you have you ever met uh, mike finger i think i have yeah so Probably here mike's here with us today hey mike how you doing whereabouts are you today I'm well. I'm calling you from a beautiful hotel room in Madison, Wisconsin today. So um, I, in route to family for the holidays, we're heading, we're actually heading to the uh, great country of Canada for the holidays. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, your wife is Canadian, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so you must be happy that we don't have any more of these uh, border controls or travel regulations. I'm, I'm just happy that we're not running into any of the white stuff in route. Uh, it's a, uh, it's not a bad, uh, not a bad season for a little travel right now. Now on, on you, you posted earlier today on LinkedIn that you were going to be on today's show and you asked me about the reindeer antlers and I, I, I've got some headwear, headgear here for today, <laughs> but uh, I was waiting for you to join the show to see what you would be wearing. Do, I got, you, have, I, do you have a I, special I, hat I, for today? I don't. Again, I'm in transit. I, uh, I, 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 I followed up your post just a little disappointed that you wouldn't you were. I'm open to new ideas, David, but uh, that visual of you and the antlers uh, a couple of years back kind of uh, changed my perspective. So it was uh, good stuff. 
Well, you know, this past year, again, with the theme of looking at 23 and looking forward to 24, I looked around and I and I thought, what is one of the most interesting things that I was able to pick up this year? And when I was visiting uh, with the good folks in Cleveland at Holdco Conference, I got an amazing gift. They gave me this hat and I'm going to wear it today. See, it's it's do you like that? <laughs> I do. What does I, I don't know what it stands for. Free cash flow. Oh, all right. right. You don't want to get hung up on SDE or EBITDA. You want money that goes in your pocket. So there, there you go. It's the uh, it's the ribbon that does it for me. That that brings it home. Well, that's what makes it festive. Yeah. <laughs> it's what makes it a Christmas free cash flow hat. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. And so 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 Rocky, I guess what would be some of the I mean, we're, we're here at the very end of the year for someone who hasn't really sat down to do any sort of planning or forecasting or look ahead to 2024. What, what are some of the things that people can can do just to lift their eyes eyes up towards the horizon a little bit? Well, and I think this is what happens. People think that this is complicated. It's not. This is back a napkin math, right? Look, like you said, take last year's numbers, say, I'm going to do a little bit better this year. Well, then adjust them and look at each month and say, you know, was this good, bad? Think about the month. Was there weather? Was something else happening that changed it? And just come up with at least something to compare to. You, Here's the number one thing. Do you know what's true of all forecasts? None of them will ever actually happen the way no, you no, forecast yeah, them, right? They're all wrong, yeah. Yeah. right? So just get close, but at least you have something to work against, something to judge against. And, and every week or month, you can do thumbs up, thumbs down. And if you've got too many thumbs down, well, then you know it's time to start doing something. And, and I, and I, you know, I think that last comment is key because when when people just say oh it was a bad week you know like like uh, we saw earlier like oh it was just a bad day just a bad month just a bad week it if you get so far off course you you know i've actually advised people before to draw a line in the sand like say how far are how much variance are you willing to have before you realize hey i need to do something very different maybe even close this right like you 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 need to set yourself some guardrails because the people who don't uh, you know, the, the, one of the most terrible things that I've seen happen in, to people in business is that things will go off the rails a little bit and they'll start putting their own resources in to try to keep things afloat. And then instead of an asset, they've got this liability that's draining them. Maybe if I dig just a little deeper, it'll be easier to get out of this hole. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the sunk cost, right? That's exactly it. Yeah. The sunk cost fallacy. I mean, this is what traps, uh, you know, people with gambling issues too, right? They think, you know, if I just bet a little bit more than, uh, I'll get it all back. Honestly, that's the principle behind profit first. It it whenever money comes in, you send it to do its job, whether it's profit, taxes, operating expenses, your salary. And if you run out of money in your operating account, well, it's an early warning signal that, hey, you spent too much or not enough came in, in which case you're going to have to do something or you're going to spend your salary, in which case your spouse is going to be mad at you because Johnny didn't get Christmas gifts this year unless you go into debt, which is another problem. And so it's helpful at 
at doing that because at the end of the day, I, I love that hat probably more than Mike does. <laughs> I still got to vote for the antlers. <laughs> <laughs> and Rocky, your message is so important. I, I'm I'm continually struck by small uh, by the reality of small business owners that don't understand that if they do what you're preaching, they can actually fail on paper before having to fail in real life, right? They can, mm -hmm. they, they can go, well, here's what I think is going to happen. And then they look at the numbers and they're like, well, wait a minute, I don't want that to happen, right? That, that, or if I do this, then this, and the ability to iron out those wrinkles ahead of time before you have to actually experience them in the business, it's just, it's brilliant when you see it in action. Mm. You know, I think most business owners are like a, a kid on Christmas Eve believing in Santa Claus, you know, they just assume that the sales are going to, I'm going to do this one thing and we're going to have double the sales tomorrow. And there's a lot of um, optimism and hope, but at the end of the day, it's got to be grounded in reality. Yes. And, and remembering uh, for those of us who were those kinds of business owners for years and years that, you can transition, you can change. There are different ways. Uh, that's, yeah, such an important message. Well, and, and you know, for business owners that survive successfully for a long period of time, you know, they, they go maybe even decades in a business and they'll see these ups and downs. And the reason why they survive is because they successfully navigate them in one way or another. Um, one of the challenging conversations I often have with people that want to buy a business is they'll they'll look at you know three to five years of financial statements perhaps for one of these businesses and maybe they don't see one of those hiccup periods and so they they go into it assuming that because the the five years of financials look like they've got a steady you know six percent incline or whatever it is that this is just going to carry on forever and it's i think one of the biggest reasons why people sometimes will overcommit the cash flow to things like debt service uh, and stuff like that is and and when if they come and meet me and have me look at the business, I'll, one of the first things I'll say is what what is the impact if there's like a ten or fifteen percent drop in sales, and and people will say, well, that's a lot, and I'm like, not in the world of small business. I mean, that's right. a new competitor opening, that's a you know a couple major customers uh, closing or some other kind of impact in the economy. Like you know, small business is not necessarily in line with the macro economy of the country or the world. You know, if you have a, a, a small size community and a major employer happens to close, all the service businesses, all the retail businesses in that community are going to have some kind of pain, right? Because a bunch of people just lost their their salaries in that town. And so there's always these things that can happen and testing to make sure that the, you know, the deal you make is still going to work and you're going to be able to service the bank debt and pay yourself if, if one of these hiccups happens, I think is one of the most important things people have to do when they look forward with these numbers. 10, 20% in a given month is just normal. Like it goes like that. That's just the reality of it. Um, a, a million things happen. Somebody doesn't pay you. Something gets delayed. All kinds of stuff happens. Henry Lopez wants me to shoe him the free cash flow. I think he's about to open a chain of cobbler stores. <laughs> Of course, it's, it's show. Henry is going to be coming on here later on. And the uh, LFW, there's Lorraine, says, Hi, David. Merry Christmas from New York City. Hey, Lorraine, how are you? I was on a guest on her show uh, just a little while back. 
And, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, Henry's yelling at us now. He's saying, show, show, show. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, Henry. We got gotcha. you. So uh, this is awesome, Rocky. So so then for your own business, you said you didn't want to 10x your revenues. What is your goal for next year? How, how do you want to make a bigger impact? I, we are going to grow a little bit next year. And the only reason I'm growing is because this past year I spent too much money on personal development. And I said, well... Do I want to work a little harder so I can pay for that? Or do I want to cut back? And so I said, you know what? For next year, we'll work a little harder so I can continue to do it. And then maybe the year after, we'll cut back again. But I'm okay with that because I'm intentional with what I want. And I think everyone needs to figure out what do they want. It's not just grow, grow, grow. Because honestly, I wouldn't be happy with my life if I kept doing that because I'd be stuck in the business. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is great, Rocky. It's good to see you again. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, Mike. Yes, sir. Rocky, so nice to see you. See you good later, Rocky. You, Merry Christmas. So, Mike, you're on your way north. And sorry, did you say a funny thing happened on your way to Canada? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> you can almost guarantee it will, but uh, no, not yet, not yet. Um, I've been. I, I, I gave some thought ahead of time. I, I want to ask you, David. What did you see for small business sales in 2023? What did What did you see trending? Well, you want to know what's interesting is that before this show started today, I thought I should do a little bit of research and uh, come up with some topics and things that we could talk about in case. Uh, people don't know what to say as, as though that would ever happen, right? And so one of the funny things that I looked up, and I've got it here on the screen next to me, but uh, I, I made a mistake when I typed in my Google search and I accidentally came up with a whole bunch of articles that were written at the end of 22 predicting what would happen in 23. Interesting. Interesting. And so I thought, ooh, maybe I could look at some of these things and maybe we can test you know, what these experts were saying. And so there's a... Um, Bob House, who is the president of CoStar Group, which owns BizBuySell, this is a, uh, was quoted in a Forbes article a year ago. And so he was asked about what he saw about the future of business buy-sell in 2023. And here's what he said. Yep. He said, based, based on how we've seen the small business market react to rising interest rates, I expect the theme for 2023 will be seller financing. The Federal Reserve is saying it's on a firm mission and it goes on and on and on. But but just the comment about the seller financing, I got to tell you, um, interest rates went up even more since that quote was taken a year ago. Yep. And more and more deals that I'm seeing people working on are being accepted by sellers with higher and higher amounts of seller financing. And it's being driven by one thing. One thing. Okay. It's the price. The sellers do not want to agree to lower prices. So instead they're contorting themselves in different ways to make the price work. And one of those things is that the sellers are increasingly agreeing to larger amounts of seller financing at rates far lower than what bank loans cost. Interesting. So it's, it's basically, you know, I don't know, you've written often about this concept of aspirational pricing. I, it, it reminds me of that. It's, it's just that people want that, you know, one million dollars or whatever it is <laughs> and uh and they're going to agree to whatever they have to in order to get it right right it, it 
the, that, that framing that takes place in the mind of a small business owner about that exit, about that sales price, is so often tethered to things completely unrelated to value, right? Yeah. Certainly from value as perceived by the market or the buyer, um, but that doesn't keep it from being very real in that owner's head. It's interesting uh, to hear you talk about the that that relationship to to seller financing, though. I mean, I'm I'm sure you've seen it dozens of times where an owner comes to the table, I want all cash, and then to watch the conversion that takes place in their uh, perspective and understanding of what seller finance financing can do, uh, not just in terms of, you know, interest income or sales price, but the ability to get a deal done at all, period, yeah. right? You, you don't even get to walk through the door. Oh, you, you're not going to go there? That's fine. But uh, now you're not going to get SBA financing and now you're not going to get all these other opportunities. And so, I mean, that conversion process, is that the same today as it was 10 years ago? Um, it's get, yeah, it is. It's, it's <laughs> a lot of this stuff that if you go back in older YouTube videos that I made, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about back then is starting to come back around again. Uh, and it, it really, I think is starting to be clear how the long, many year period of low interest rates has affected the way deals are done and the way people think about these deals. Um, you know, the people will mention multiples as being reasonable when, you know, I hear the multiple and I'm like, that's not reasonable, sure. but it's just for a while, the numbers worked. Right. Yep. And so I, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens here over the, over the, the course of time. But, you know, when, when I hear now, especially people in the real estate space, you know, they're saying, when will rate cuts be coming? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't gamble on any rate cuts. We're, of all the, I mean, I'm only 48, but I've bought one, two, I bought three small apartment houses, like three to four units, and I've bought uh, four houses over the course of my life. And, um, you know, almost every house or apartment building that I've ever bought has been at interest rates similar to what is currently in play now. Like, these are just normal rates. and. Right. That it's going to take a while, I think, for for the adjustment to work its way through uh, people's minds. I, I, you know, the, absolutely. Uh, and the the thing is that, and I, I'm struck by this when I see it in social media or, or, or news posts where we talk about the macro, right? We talk about the interest rate. We talk about how how are M and A deals going? Is it is it really busy? Is there a lot in the marketplace? And it seems to me that almost every deal comes down to an individual situation, right? It, it's I, I, maybe, maybe there's a handful of owners out there that go, oh, interest rates are too high. I'm going to wait. Or, hey, you know, M&A deals are down. I'm going to wait. But I think for most engaging this topic, it's personal, right? Oh, I'm I'm sick or this thing happened or I'm just tired of owning this business or I have another opportunity. And now I suddenly find myself engaging the variables as they exist. So mm. it's, it's so interesting to me because it's fascinating to talk about because you and I both know it has a huge influence on the marketplace, but from an individual buyer or seller's perspective, they're kind of doing what they're doing. 
Yeah, and and people that are focused on what they're doing and they do it well are going to be insulated from what's happening in their own particular market. Um, I I know a guy that owns a plumbing company uh, and he's got record growth in his business right now. Meanwhile, uh, he knows that other plumbing outfits around him are struggling. And, you know, there was this chorus kind of in the online space for a while talking about things like home services, like plumbing, electrical, this type of thing. And how because people always need these services that, uh, you know, you can't lose by getting into this kind of industry. And it's funny because, um, like, I'm old enough to remember past recessions. Right. And, And now I'm starting to realize that there are people in the market, business people with millions of dollars who actually don't. They're, right. they're maybe 10 years younger than me, right? Yep. And, you know, whenever you have interest rate spikes and housing start declines and the decline in the starts of new major construction, like big condo towers or something, um, well, all the trace people that work on that stuff become liberated and they go looking for other work. Right. And so all of a sudden the trade has all these extra actors, all these extra people who are looking for work. And if someone does new construction as a plumbing, they can certainly try their hand at, you know, uh, you know, repair work, right, as a plumber. And so this is, and this is what's happening in some spaces. There was a big article out in the news, actually, about a plumbing company in the Toronto area that had gone to four-day work weeks because they don't want to cut people. Right. They don't have enough work to keep everyone busy. And so they're trying to do this sort of job-sharing accommodation just to try to keep people on because, you know, they don't, once you start letting people go, then it's hard to maybe find good people again down the road when you need them. Right, right. So you're suggesting, I mean, going back to the start of that story, you're suggesting that there's people in the marketplace that are trying to sell easy money solutions or, or, or pure real six, you know. No, what, what, what I'm saying is that, you know, the, the start of that example was that the fellow I know what I'm talking about is really good at running his business. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, just taking care of his customers and, you know, is happy to hire on some of the people that are losing their jobs in other outfits that are having trouble keeping up. And so it really is a macro situation. You can have soaring interest rates. You can have, you know, falling economy. You can have all these bad news headlines and there can be a really great opportunity for the right kind of business in the right spot where people uh, are still going to want that product or service and it's going to make sense for you to buy it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's all about individual circumstances and the, the micro market, not the macro. That's right. And I think that's a difficult thing for a lot of buyers to understand. I know it's a difficult thing for a lot of sellers to understand. Um, what do you see with buyers with that? I mean, do they, do you, I would guess you coach them to recognize that individual reality. Well, um, you know, I... I do. I I talk with. Um, I mean, people come to me when they when they find an opportunity and they want my input, right? And I and I help show them what may or may not happen, and I show them what other people have paid for that business before and why, um, what makes sense. Ultimately, it's up to them to make a decision about what whether they want to do it or not. Sure. But, like a good portion of the people that that reach out and want my help are really far off the mark. Hmm. It's you know like in um, their analysis, you mean in their yeah in, okay. In, well, the, not not to say that they're not smart or they don't you know yeah. think about things. 
it's just it's just that because they've never done it before they they'll miss huge things it's like uh you know when i learned how to drive uh the driving instructor was trying to really impress upon me the importance of checking your blind spot right and i think one time i didn't do it and he and he you know scolded me he was like you have to check your blind spot and he's like here let let me move the car and so he moved the car and he put my house my you know the where i grew up my parents house in the yep. blind spot okay and he's like look in your mirror look to the left and right you can't see your house it's a house it's big yeah yeah and and, and that's the same thing that kind of happens when people get involved in something that they they don't have any experience doing right yeah. right now i was working with a seller in fact on, on a call earlier this week um he's got an interested buyer and I was prepping for the call and, and he came on screen and I, I shared my screen and I had probably 17 or 18 windows open, uh, you know, browser windows open because I had looked for the buyer and then I had looked for the business they owned and then I had looked for other, right? And it's just this going down this rabbit hole of what can we learn about this potential buyer? And he sat back and he went, I, I, I should have done that. I should have understood to do that, but I didn't. And right, it's just to your point, it's something having done it over and over and over again, you realize what opportunities are there to explore, analyze and learn. And, and again, realizing that it's an individual to individual transaction that takes place. Yeah, um, Henry, I sorry, I just updated the calendar invite and I put the link in there. Um, it was an oversight, so you should be able to find it in your uh, in your calendar. Um, we, we've got a we got a few more questions here. Someone wants to know where in Canada you're going. Probably someone I'm, from your fan club. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's good. We're we're heading towards the the London Ontario area. Excellent. I've been to London before. It's a nice town. Um, we have a, a follow up from small business success about that franchise system, he was saying it was the 12 variables the staff could control, influence or respond to. It was filled weekly on monthly spreadsheets with previous month and the same month last year, et cetera. It kept them focused on revenue. Yeah, exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about, having a system scorecard that people can use to, to figure out where they're headed and what, what to expect. And most importantly, uh, when something is wrong. Uh, LFW Network says uh, that she loves the special. Thank you very much. We put a lot of effort into this every year, and uh, and there's more excitement to come. I promise. <laughs> um, we we Victor says thanks, Rocky, for saying that if you don't enjoy the journey, you won't enjoy the destination. So true, and I really needed to hear that. Yes, very much so. You, you've had quite a journey because you have been in and out of your own businesses several times, and you work with sellers that want to turn maybe a business that isn't quite that marketable into something really worthwhile. Is that, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, I coach owners who are interested in creating a business that they can sell tomorrow or keep forever. It, it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, you and I understand the, uh, I want to sell my business phase it seems to be something that pops up in someone's head and they think, oh, I'm gonna sell now. And it doesn't work that way, right? It has to be something we've we've prepped for and prepared for. and put us in a place where we look at our business differently. And so uh, I was talking with a with an owner earlier earlier today and they're like, well, I'm not sure that you're my guy because I don't wanna sell. And I said, listen, 
This isn't about selling. This is about the freedom to choose, right? Because if I have the ability to sell the business, I also have the ability to go away for two weeks on a vacation, or yeah. I have the ability to, to engage my business um, as a supportive contributing factor to my life, not as a giant sucking vacuum of energy, time, and money. Um, that's the... That's the key is, is figuring out how to make that switch. But it, it's interesting what you mentioned just a minute ago, David. You, you know, you asked what was unique about 23, 24. I found myself dealing with a number of owners post-sale. I had clients who sold, uh, former clients who re-engaged. And, uh, and Rocky alluded to that as well, that, that space after the sale, fascinating. Right. Uh, just uh, do you get a lot of opportunity to interact with the post sale owner? I, well, sometimes I mean, I work with far more buyers than I work with sellers. But usually when I talk with sellers, it's in the short period after the sale. And they're usually still in that exuberant uh, vacation pressure off the shoulders kind of yep. state where you know, after a while, they don't get the anxious knot in their stomach when their cell phone rings. Like, and then one day they realize, oh, I'm not afraid of my cell phone anymore. <laughs> and and for people out there who've never owned a business, like, that, that it's a real thing. Like, wow, that's know. such a good capture of what it means. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, but you know, we, we've been talking about. I mean, we talked about this at Bob House quote about the seller financing. I mean, is that one of the things that you end up talking with with your sellers because? When I was a broker, when someone brought in a business that had a lot of problems, what one of the things that I would end up sharing with them is like, if you want to take this to market, we can, but here's what you're going to get uh, because of all these issues, no bank is going to lend money on this deal right. and we have to find just the right buyer. And because no bank will lend money, um, you're going to be the bank. And yep. so you're going to end up maybe getting next to nothing on closing. Maybe some debts will be covered or, or something like this. Or maybe someone will offer to assume some debts, but your guarantee won't be released from them. Right. right? And, and these are the kinds of, you know, not so pleasant outcomes that will likely be your condition unless you do something to fix this up. And, you know, I wasn't really in the in the coaching to help people fix businesses business. So some of those people went off and tried. Some of those people did other things. Some of the times I heard that they closed after a while, you know, just because they ended up frustrated and, and couldn't figure it out on their own. Yeah, it's a it's a harsh reality for a lot of us as owners. And I, I mean, I say that uh, uh, us as owners, that was my first business journey, right? It was like, wait a minute, what do you mean uh, th this is the reality I'm entering into? Um, and, and that, you know, that seller financing is such an interesting role because I, I know how to engage my business as the owner, but the idea of engaging it as a banker, uh, it's different, right? It, I, I lose control. I lose that ownership. And now I'm, I'm placing a bet on someone's, someone else's ability to take this entity I've created and replicate the, the hopefully positive results. And that's a, that's a different venture. Yeah, yeah. We have a we have a few other comments here. Um, Rocky says thanks very much for having me on. Merry Christmas. Awesome. Good rock. Good to see you again, Rocky. Uh, Money Boot Camp, who I believe is based out of Ireland. I believe this is a, a winner of a maple basket at one point in my show's history. 
wants to know if there's any updates on your exit squad. And curiously enough, I got an email this week from someone trying to pitch us on being uh, uh, on your exit squad. Not a business owner, of course. Someone who you know has something to sell. But, That's right. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about your exit squad because I know that there are many fans in my audience from this show because I, I played the audio. I, I released them over the summer, I think, on my channel on the audio feed. So for those that don't know, your exit squad was a show that Mike and I did a, a year ago. It was yep. the you know the fall of twenty two, and we it was kind of like a reality program sort of format where we found small business owners that needed to do some work. We matched them with a coach, and then they came back and talked with us about their experience. So why should we let people know why we haven't done season two? It's interesting. I had someone follow up with me a little earlier today about it as well. Yeah, it, uh, it, it an interesting uh, a journey, a great adventure. I, I think we've, we were both very happy with the engagement and the, the viewership and the professionals that engaged. And we found ourselves struggling figuring out how to find and identify owners who were interested in in going on that journey um, yeah and, and that that was really the the sticking point for us is is figuring out how to find owners that wanted to uh and to be fair expose the challenges they were facing in their business um and then work the process of of fixing those things in a, a in an open way yeah, and, and so that's really what it came down to. It was that we didn't have business owners that wanted to do it. And I think at the end of the day, it has to do with the fact that small business is private. Yeah. And, you know, people don't necessarily want their business out where people can see it. Now, I do the I do this holiday chat series, right? where people will get a discounted price on a consulting call. And in order to do that, they have to agree that it's gonna be released publicly, but I do allow people to be anonymous. Yep. And so it does encourage some participation. I, I think it would be more difficult for us to have the program with our business owners being anonymous. I, it would make it more difficult. I think it would be less engaging if we were interacting with a, you know, a darkened screen or something like that. but. You know, I will often have people point to characters and personalities that are in the online world who are talking about business and, you know, maybe talking about how their business does and this kind of thing. And, you know, I, I always have a little bit of skepticism when I see stuff like that, because I just know how private most people consider their business affairs. Right. Um, you know, when when I see articles about you know, this is how I did this thing and earned a hundred thousand dollars online. I'm always like, mm, what are you selling? <laughs> right? Like, because most people that I know in the world of business that figure out an easy way to make a hundred grand aren't telling anybody. Right. They're doing it over and over and over again. Precisely. Yeah. 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 And that was, well, I recently made a video, one of my Wednesday videos about artificial intelligence and buying businesses. And one of the little things that I forgot to mention is, or maybe I, I can't remember if I said it or not, but but if there was some outfit, like a, a private equity group or whatever, who had this super duper AI whiz bang machine for giving them an advantage, they're not going to let you subscribe to it for $20 a month. Right. They're, they're, they're going to keep <laughs> Wait a minute, it. They're not going to give it away for free. They're going to keep it and they're going to yeah. buy all the stuff. They're, right. like, they're going to they're gonna use it to their own advantage and, and you know, get the, as big a return as they can. So... That, that's the one thing that that 
I think I've had to impress on a lot of people who get into this space for the first time is that a lot of this stuff is private. Yeah. And this is why I think one of the most important things you can do is if you want to get into the world of business, if you want to buy a business someplace uh, or do any kind of deal or start a business even, you need to get yourself some friends who are in business. Because it's only through developing a friendship where people get tight and they trust each other, kind of like how you and I trust uh, Henry Lopez. Um, <laughs> it's only when you get some friends that are business owners that and you trust each other and know each other that people are going to actually open up and like reveal some of their experiences and things that happened. And, you know, I mean, I share stuff about my background, my business experiences and stuff. I don't share everything. Like, I think everyone to a certain degree has has sort of a, a limitation of what they're going to put out there in the world. And in order to really hear the reality of some of the experiences that other people have, they have to they have to trust you that you're not going to violate the, you know, their confidence and, you know, use their you know, maybe an exposed vulnerability against them in some way. Yeah. And and this comes through friendship. You know, you, you develop a relationship with people who have these experiences and then they can kind of, you know, help you out and, and set expectations. Um, and, and, it's David, mastermind groups. Oh, yeah. Is a big example, right? That, that's that that's so critical what you just talked about it because it's, some of it is knowledge, some of it is information, but I genuinely think most of it is the trust that allows me to say to Henry, Henry, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make any sense to you? And for him to be able to say, you know what? I, I've never done this before either, but the way you're thinking about it makes sense. And here's the, right? I mean, it's just that um, like minds being open to, to engaging that conversation. That's a freaking superpower to be able to surround yourself with small business owners who have sat in that seat and engaged those issues as they come. Uh, it's not about right answers. It's about uh, effective conversation and engagement. Henry, you're on mute there, but um, Henry, you're the host of The How of Business, and you've got a ton of experience talking with business owners on your podcast and as well in, in your own consulting uh, right. space. Uh, you've probably got a lot you can add to this whole concept of business owners should have business owner friends. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's I'm nodding my head because I, this is what I see, you know, and as a coach, I say sometimes to your point, David and Mike, it's not that I'm even pretending to have all the answers, but sometimes with a business, uh, business ownership and entrepreneurship can be very isolating, right? Mm. We typically, for most of us, or certainly if you're starting out, you come into it and your circle of influence is usually devoid of other business owners. And so, yeah, you can talk to them and they mean well, but nobody understands what you're going through like another business owner. And I, and my, I'm guilty of that in particular because the type of businesses that I've been focused on lately allow me to be home office remote. And I love that. But as a result, I become even more and more isolated. So I see it and I'm conscious of it. I think that we must reach out and start to develop that network of other business owners. And a lot of it, to your point, though, David, I see people have a hesitation because they're afraid that others might not want to share or should I, how transparent should I be? You know, I'm over the philosophy of, yeah, sure, you, you got to have some caution, but you know what? Share, be transparent. I think you'll find that in return from the right people. 
I think other business owners always love to talk about business. So I think it's critical. I, I, uh, I've been teaching, uh, probably about every quarter I will, uh, there's a, a sort of a startup sort of fresh entrepreneur group here locally. And I go and do a talk with them and I talk with them about sales and sales plans and, mm. you know, how to make sales happen in their business. And we'll, we'll talk about things like, you know, how many sales calls you might have to make to get a prospect and how long it might take to convert that prospect into uh, someone who actually buys and, and this kind of thing. And, you know, one of the things that people will say is, well, how do I know what that conversion rate is going to be? Like, mm. I'm not in business yet. And, you know, mm. I'll say, hey, every kind of industry out there, from auto repair owners to print shop owners to janitorial service owners, there's some kind of Facebook group or LinkedIn group or some kind of group with these people in it. Right. And if you reach out to and talk with a business owner in that industry who is in some far off place that will never compete with you yep. and reach out to that person and say, hey, can I have a quick conversation? I just want to find out, you know, how many sales calls you make before you get a customer and, and you know, how that might change over time, you know a lot of these people are more than happy Absolutely. to 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 give you that 30 or minute or even hour long phone call and help someone out that is thinking about getting into this and, yeah. and usually there's some like warning or or error that person feels they made and they want you to know like yeah. like yeah. they're like oh i I want to warn you about this. Like, don't do this mistake I did or something like that. Yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of reaching out the right yeah. way. And it's also why we need to know our percentages, right? Because people are a lot more comfortable saying my gross margins are this or my net operating margins are that. People are guarded when you're asking me to divulge the specific numbers. But that's why we have to know those ratios, uh, those percentages, because people are more than willing to share that. And I think it serves that person. They're going to be curious as well to see how you do and, and what can I learn from that, right? We're, we all are desperate to benchmark ourselves. Is this good? Is this not so good? Can I do better? What are others doing? And so that's the other reason I think that business owners, if approached the right way, are more than willing to share. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And gentlemen, you have that with each other. David, I, I don't, I'm at my, I'm at my hat bow limit time. So uh, <laughs> you've had enough free cash flow. You've had I, enough. He's Henry's, got some, a, Henry's got some shoes for you. Apparently have, have a fabulous holiday. I'll leave you two to it. Thank you, Mike. Awesome. Take care. Awesome. Um, so, so Henry, you, you made a, you, you mentioned there just a moment ago, the whole sort of remote work kind of a thing and how it can be harder perhaps right. for people to make relationships with each other when they're kind of isolated in, in that space. I think this is one of the, one of the trends, I think, obviously since the post, uh, post 2020, um, yeah. but, uh, I've got a new guest who just popped in, actually, uh, who can help us shed some light on this. Excellent. Um, Aaron, how are you today? I am doing great, David. How are you? Great to see you I'm again. I'm great. Now, Aaron is new to the program, uh, and uh, Aaron and I met this past summer. Um, Aaron is a lawyer, and are you in Toronto still? I am still in Toronto, yeah. Aaron's a Toronto-based lawyer, but uh, the law firm is entirely virtual, isn't it? We are totally virtual. We've got people all over Canada. We've got people in the U.S., India, you name it, uh, in different roles. Obviously, all the lawyers are Canadian, uh, but we run a remote-first business, and and you know that is not the case for a lot of law firms. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and so let, let's let's have a chat about this because I think that yeah. this is going to be 
increasingly normal uh, as we move forward. And I think it's probably one of the ways that smaller upstart businesses are going to be able to perhaps maneuver to get some great talent by being able to offer this kind of uh, a work environment. Um, and so why don't you tell us about that? Like, like how long ago yeah. did the firm get started? What has the growth kind of looked like? Yeah, so I was uh, formerly a partner at one of the bigger Canadian firms and got frustrated with that for many reasons. I think the same reason so many people get into entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship through acquisition, where you know it's just you want more independence, flexibility, all of that sort of stuff. Um, the legal profession tends to be pretty traditional for obvious reasons, and the narrative these days is culture, culture, in person, it has to be in person, everything must be this way. And the reality is, and I talk to people who I'm involved with, uh, I train lawyers in M&A at a lot of the big firms and mid-sides and small firms. So I talk to a lot of the people at those firms, the people in charge of this. There is a belief, rightly or wrongly, I certainly have my views, that the last you know three or so years of lawyers, junior lawyers, have not been well trained. That's probably true. The real question, of course, is why? <laughs> is it because they were working remotely or is it because firms and other businesses haven't adapted to what hybrid work means or what remote work means? Uh, about uh, two and a half years ago, I started a training company called Farrell Academy, which is what I mentioned. We train lawyers uh, all over Canada on M&A, junior lawyers, law students. It's fully virtual. I literally have not seen my co-founder in person since we started. We used to work together uh, prior to that. And we've built the top training in Canada for that. And it's all remote training. But the difference is we built remote first and we built it deliberately with a focus mm. on that. When it comes to our law firm, we've been around for five years. I obviously joined uh, in the last couple and fully remote. We've got a WeWork office in Montreal for our Quebec team. We've got okay. people in Ontario who are all at home like me. We've got someone in Newfoundland. And then we've got a bunch of people who are contractors all over the place. I think the biggest thing is from a cultural standpoint, we do not just do what we would have done if we had an in-person office. We are incredibly deliberate about mm. documentation, systematization, we build culture in a very different way, and I would argue a much better way, quite frankly, because we have to be deliberate about this. We can't just be, oh, you'll run into people in the hallways. And the reality is for most people, the old world wasn't working great for a lot of people. It worked great for some people. And we've built this incredible culture that there's no way we could have built in person. And like you said, David, we've been able to attract talent from anywhere because they're so grateful to have that flexibility and to be able to work remotely and all of that. And, and that is just not common in law right now. Henry, you're you are invested in a co-working space as well in Florida, and so are, are have you and your and your partner seen uh, sort of the the other side of this? You know, these remote workers who don't necessarily have an office, and, and how do, is it a growing thing in that industry? Yeah, d definitely. I didn't. I, this is such a hot topic. It's, it's interesting that this topic comes up now, David, because I just replied about an hour ago to an email inquiry for one of my coaching clients on this on this challenge, right, that businesses are having, and I have a lot of opinions on it. But to answer your question, what we're seeing is where I think it's going to level off for now. Uh, the franchise that you're referring to that I'm a minority owner and is called Office Evolution, unlike WeWork, Office Evolution tended to end up as our location is in a more suburban setting. And I'm point that out for a reason. What what that has worked out well for us is what we're finding is people who it's not conducive to work at home for whatever reason, whether they're an employee or a small business owner or a solopreneur, but they don't want to commute to the city center anymore or wherever the office used to be. Okay. So we're seeing this hybrid as you know, to an extent as Aaron's kind of talking about, but 
but they don't they don't want to do that commute. They need a conducive space. Maybe they only need it periodically. Maybe they only need it when they need to meet with a client. So they just need a professional conference room in a professional setting. But that's what we're seeing is those people in between. So we're seeing now what used to be predominantly the demand for that space used to be small, you know, the one person law firm, the three person brokerage that now it's corporate employees who are being given a stipend and they can use it as they wish, but it's, you know, five minutes from home, but they get the conducive environment. So that's what we're seeing there in that environment. Aaron, do you guys have like a, a regular uh, meet together where you all physically come together to try to solve some of those culture issues? Yeah, so we, we do a bunch of different things. And just picking up on the point Henry mentioned, you know, we've got like a student, for example, who's joining us starting in January. Um, she's based in Brampton. We had someone in Pickering last semester. Do they really want to have to commute to you know downtown mm -hmm. Toronto? No, they can work from home or, or to Henry's point, you know, you'd want that local ability to go somewhere, you know, not have to commute so far because the commute's, the commute's terrible. And, and, and that's, I think, the biggest pain that people have with the return to office. Yeah. It's not seeing people, although in some cases it is the <laughs> lack of quiet space and deep work. It, it's it, it's yeah. also that commute. So in terms of what we do, um, so, um, you know, so, so when I joined my current firm, I'd only worked in big firms. Uh, I worked at a big company in it prior to that before going to law school and business, and then worked at a big firm. So what I knew was large law firms, large offices. And when you understand how much rent they're paying, like I'm talking eight figures a year of rent for people to commute in from the suburbs, like, like it's wild. That's where your fees are going is to cover a lot of rent. Like it's, well, it's wild. And the um, depreciation on the leaseholds. Do you know what like that wood uh, paneling costs? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, that's those are expensive it's, to build. It's, those it's a wild concept in the artwork and all the other old school kind of nonsense. Anyways, and so um, never worked uh, at at a, at a very small firm startup kind of before. And we we have a very much a startup vibe. The team is younger um, and much more entrepreneurial. And um, so what I realized is, hey, I got to upskill my management skills, my leadership skills, and all these kind of things. And I got to learn how what are the best practices for running a business remote or even hybrid. And there's a bunch of books out there. One that kept coming up was a book called Running Remote. So I read the book, which seems pretty logical. And, and my view on the legal profession has always been, we're no different than other professions. Just take right. best practices, tweak them a little bit because there are some yeah. unique things. But by and large, we're a services business, like any service business, you know, David, your clients or Henry, you know, other people might buy. And so those best practices, they're right there. You know, read mm -hmm. an awesome book called The Culture Code, which is one of, again, the most recommended books on building culture, whether it's in-person remote. I said, great. We got to implement this stuff. Some we were already doing, some weren't. And then we went async first, which is very atypical. That means uh, well, it's very common in remote businesses. It's very atypical for law firms, for sure. And that means documentation, playbooks for everything. Yeah. But guess what? That works great, too, when we fix fee legal work because we can be more efficient. But it also means, you know, onboarding is better, training is better, all these kind of things. So um, in terms of in-person stuff, just going back to your question, yeah, we'll meet up periodically. So the Montreal team will meet up every so often on their cadence. Yeah. We'll do a whole firm thing at different times or when people are coming to a conference or whatnot, we'll, we'll have meetups there. So, you know, I think we've been able to build this culture where like we don't need to brainstorm in person. We're doing that all the time remotely in ways that work well using technology, using different things. But obviously it's great to see people in person as well. There's no doubt about that. Well, I mean, you know, outside of my own businesses, I've always been uh, in sales. And so sales teams, I think for a long time, have been very distributed and remote. Yep. You know, you always got this company with these sales reps all over, you know, distributed all over the place, a lot of them working from home. And that was my existence in when my career at the Yellow Pages and also my, when I worked for American Express, it was the same way. So I worked at home and, you know, 
twice a year maybe we get together with the other people and do something go to a baseball game have some meetings all day and then maybe go to a baseball game at night or something like that and other than that it was you know even before video meetings were were available it was just on the phone you know you're calling your colleagues for insights tips questions about this that or the other thing and and you'd build those same relationships over time just like people would that you know were together in a in a field of cubicles and so you know I've I've always had um, this inclination that is totally doable. Um, it just you need to have the tools there for people to be. And I don't know. Do you do you think there's a certain kind of person that doesn't uh, sort of uh, conform well to a remote or distributed workforce? Henry, why don't you take it first? I can see. You yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think there's a different type of role. Uh, yeah. So. So we're seeing this already, right? We're seeing there's a reason why the truth is the white elephant in the room right now on this topic is that larger corporations and as small business owners, we, we kind of see what, what they're doing and learning and how does it apply to us? You know, in a firm like Aaron's, I can see where it works. You have more what I would call knowledge workers. You have independent mm -hmm. producers. There isn't a lot of as much collaboration that has to happen. I'm not saying there isn't. Sure. Uh, but in when you're seeing larger corporations, then um, I have a couple of insights to it, not just from what we're reading. My daughter happens to work for one of those in New York City, and they're taking a, a hybrid approach because they took advantage, as Aaron pointed out, and you pointed out, David, the fact that they let go of an incredible amount of leased space, right? Hmm. But they realize that a lot of what they do in their teams is collaborative and productivity is down and there is less collaboration that's not facilitating by being in the same physical space. So what they've done as an example, and I'm seeing a lot of corporations do is one week a month is when they can schedule in-person meetings and they do that. And then went off as they need to, but they're still allowing that flexibility, which let's face it, the reason as employees, we can demand that is because of the labor shortage, right? If as employers, we had the ability to say, nope, David, you've got to come in or I'll find somebody else, we would probably do that. I'm talking about larger corporations, right? Because, mm. because you tend to want that command and control. But to your point, I think that there are some people that work well remotely and some that don't. And a lot of it, I think, honestly, has to do with their home environment and how conducive it is or isn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point, you know. I, I, I can definitely tell you that uh, there's a different vibe here when my kids are at school versus when they're here. Yeah, of course. Just of course, because, because it is a distraction, no matter how much we might want to uh, say that it's not. And it's a heck of a lot easier to say, you know, I'll go run that errand now. And sure, those are lifestyle things that are great. And I think the vast majority of people still get their work done. I mean, but we're talking about employees now. And I'm not, not talking down to employees or company. I'm saying as an owner, I have the self-discipline that I'm going to get the work done, right? I'll be up at midnight doing what I need to do if I did take that lunch break or went to lunch with my wife. As an employee, I, I don't know. I think some of them do, some of them don't. And so that's why I think some businesses are being challenged with that. I think, though, that one of the clues, just to continue on this, that we can take from larger corporations, you take... Uh, uh, Google, for example, and I know a couple of people that work there, the approach that they're taking is more closer to home groups. So it's that hybrid approach so that there's the opportunity for collaboration, mm. but the flexibility of eliminating the painful 
uh, commute as Aaron was talking about. Yeah. Aaron, uh, just curious, are you friends with any other people that are also running remote organizations? Are you able to kind of compare notes outside of the, the legal frame? I would say, I mean, I, I've got friends of mine who have been remote for, like you sort of alluded to, David, you know, for a decade plus, but, you know, in a different world, pre-Zoom, mm -hmm. pre-all of these things. I would say it feels like almost every company in Canada and in a lot of other countries there, well, they had has gone back to hybrid or fully in person. Uh, not all, obviously. You know, there's some tech companies that are exceptions, including ones that were fully remote first. So on the legal side, we are an exception other than a couple other small firms that were already distributed. I would say, I sort of look at it as, you know, if you weren't deliberate or aren't deliberate about running remote, it's not going to go well. And I truly believe what has happened here, you've got some generational differences and some other things, but essentially what's happened is people said, hey, we've been having some problems. We don't know how to fix them. Well, we know the thing before sort of worked, even though, to be clear, didn't work well for various, you know, uh, groups of people, uh, different genders, races, diversity, other, you know, et cetera. Works terribly for new parents. Like I had a kid born in 2021. Uh, was it 2021? No, 2022. <laughs> 2022. Ooh, um, that's, that's a sign of sleep. Uh, excuse me, right 20, So, um, you know, I was home the whole time, which was awesome for my wife, uh, for me as a, as a new parent to be involved, mm -hmm. the flexibility, the convenience, all of that, you know, to watch him grow up has been incredible. Um, to be able to do, sure, I might do some errands during the day, but hey, it takes me two seconds to put on laundry. That's a chore that's done. Like, yeah. it's the little, the little stuff where, and not have to commute, so in terms of sleep, in right. terms of exercise, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And so, you know, I think, but again, if you weren't deliberate about it, it's easy to say, well, I've got some concerns or, yeah, we've seen this trend in productivity, this, that. It must be this remote thing. Let's just go back, which to me is asking the wrong question. The real question is, how do I increase productivity and morale and not have increased mm. productivity come with a decline in morale? And the reality is, in many cases, in almost all cases, forcing, I mean, the word forcing tells you everything, people back, is not something employees want. If they really wanted to be there, they wouldn't have to be forced back, I, I would argue. And so what we've really been trying to focus on is saying, hey, like, what do our people want? How do we motivate them? What keeps them happy? How do we do that? And Canada's cold in the winter, so some of our people will not be in Canada. Well, you know, it's interesting that you just, you mentioned it that way because I'm increasingly meeting entrepreneurs with these diverse, um, these uh, distributed teams yeah. where they've gotten rid of an office altogether. And instead mm -hmm. they're using that rent budget to go and they'll, they'll, you know, to your point about Canada, maybe yep. they decide we're going to have a one week intensive work together right. in, uh, you know, Florida for yep. a week mm -hmm. and uh, everyone can enjoy some nicer weather. And, uh, and, and this is how we're going to redeploy our money and try to make yep. everyone happier. Yeah, I want to come I've, back to this point. I'm sorry, Aaron, to interrupt, because this point that Aaron's making, I think, is so spot on. And it's exactly what I was talking about with this client that I alluded to earlier this morning. I think that the work from home has exposed what was already a problem in our communication, collaboration. It's just that it's it's facilitated because I can pop my head over the cube or interrupt you while you're yeah. working and it gets done. But now it's exposed that I've got a problem there. Yeah. Yeah, but I gotta fix that problem, not yank everybody by it back in necessarily. We we've got a bunch more comments here in the in the chat. We got uh, Tucker says hi, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Tucker's uh, in Cleveland. Hey Tucker, how are you doing? Great to see you. Uh, join us for the show. Um, 
Victor uh, says, thanks for the uh, thanks to Mike for having the insight regarding having a business that can be sold because it means the owner can take time off. It's so easy to get engrossed in running the business and being a slave to it. Yeah, true. Uh, Kevin's got a comment here. He says, you guys moved on from the topic before I could type my question. Sorry. What are your suggestions for mastermind groups if you are in a partnership? Should you be joining together or separately? I know I have a, an opinion about this. What do you guys think? So he's asking, like, if I have a business partner, should we join the same mastermind or yeah. separate? Is that what he's asking, you think? Yeah. Uh, well, since I jumped in, uh, um, I don't know. That's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, if I can see where there's benefits to both, I can see where that could be a space for you to talk about things that might be sensitive or to get input on how to deal with a challenge with your partner. So I, I think I would lean that way. So my experience in having been in many mastermind groups over the course of time and seeing different people in different situations is, is this. If it's an industry trade kind of group, like if you're all car dealers or you're right. all painting contractors, go together. That makes sense. Uh, and if it is just a general mastermind group about all things business and you have people from different industries in there, go alone because that, mm -hmm. you're, to your point, mm -hmm. uh, Henry, that is where you will go to get advice about difficulties with your partner. Yeah, that makes but sense. But if, it, if it's a trade thing, the two of you are going to go there because the two of you will draw more out of that meeting. Right. Because afterwards you will sit and right and i don't have to come and convince and you say oh let me tell you about this best practice you we absorbed it together yeah, right exactly. as opposed to issues yeah it's, it's a really interesting question um you know it's, it's funny I, I run some mastermind groups uh both for lawyers but also for just people doing you know smb stuff and my wife i didn't also even know some. that we have an expert look at yeah, that yeah i've ran, ran a few here and my wife actually runs some on the management leadership side which is an awesome. she's passionate about knowledge about and what's interesting is actually one of my colleagues um uh goes to her management leadership group because we identified it a need for him to actually upskill on the management leadership side and he's super open to it but i would say that the thing at our culture that is again a little bit unique is like one of our key values is transparency and like we are actually transparent <laughs> not like you know the values on the wall like I, I worked at a big company you know a decade ago in a past life and there were the the values and then there were the values and, the and they values. were not consistent for us you know the values are real and so th there's really nothing that is going to be a surprise to him or to my wife when he says it or things like that. It's all stuff we've been talking about. And it's really a question of, you know, maybe sometimes hearing something from someone a different way, you know, clicks differently. I'll give you a quick example with my wife. I sent her a podcast the other day uh, and like she listened to it. She's like, holy crap, like this was incredible. I'm like, this is literally what I've been telling you for the last you know year and a half, but you just heard it from someone else's voice and it, you know, maybe right. a slightly different framing and, and it connected. So I think you've got a great culture. It really shouldn't matter whether you're there together or not. I think most cultures, people aren't having the honest, transparent, hard conversations up front. And as a result, I think you definitely want to be there separately as a result, or else you're going to have some problems when those things come up or you can't be honest and open and transparent. Agreed. Yeah. Great points. Great points. Um, all right. So uh, obviously for the coming year, is everyone in agreement that businesses would have an advantage if they become more open to sort of remote hybrid work environments? Is this here to stay? Well, again, I'll go back to my strong opinions on this. I think that it depends on the type of worker and the type of business. And yeah. I, but however, I think it's here to stay for now because that's what employees are going to demand and get. Do you, th you mentioned the labor market being tight. Do you think that continues to be true? 
Yes, absolutely. I think we're seeing some easement. And I do not believe, by the way, that it's because people don't want to work or they're giving getting government handouts. Certainly, there's various factors. The reality is that there are less people entering the workforce for the jobs that are out there. Uh, there are exceptions, but I think that, in my opinion, and what I've read and researched and understand, that I think is the biggest culprit. And that's not going to change, right? So that is why we must continue as small businesses to look for opportunities for productivity, to apply technology, AI, whatever those tools are. I think it's going to be a bigger challenge for people who need, like I need service technicians to go deliver the service. Those industries are going to be more challenged because of the labor shortage. That's my two cents worth. Yeah, awesome. I would say if you're if you're able to run a remote business and embrace that, you have an unfair advantage. You can hire from the entire world. Great. Um, you can Great. hire, you know, even in Canada, it's funny. We were looking a while ago. We we're going to hire like a bookkeeper, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, in Toronto, the salary expectations are wild compared to even other parts of our province, right? Simply because yeah. the cost of living is so bad. Sure. Not to mention we ended up going offshore where the cost is a fraction of that uh, for what our needs were. But my point being is if you're already running remote and you've got that documentation in, in the culture, you literally have the world, you know, the world is your oyster. And that is just an advantage in a tighter labor market or even not. Um, and I think, you know, what you'll find is is from an attrition standpoint, from all those other things, it, it is an unfair advantage because I think we all know it's not just hiring that stuff. But if you lose somebody, that cost is enormous. Mm. Um, and I also go back to, you know, someone who's who's running a business, thinking about selling it or looking to buy a business. I mean, your business is a whole lot more saleable if it's documentation first. And so remote first almost forces you into that. Yeah. But it means it's saleable. You've got the playbooks. That knowledge isn't in that owner-operator's brain. And for so many small businesses, I mean, I think we all well know far too well here, that knowledge is stored in one key person, two key people's brains. Mm-hmm. And if they're the ones selling and leaving, you know, that's a challenge. In law firms, that knowledge is all in the much more senior people who can literally leave at any time, walk out the door, right. take their practice elsewhere. There's no non-competes allowed, or at least not, not doesn't happen. So at any point in time, someone can die, walk away, all that stuff. And it's really no different than running any other SMB. So I think remote first can be way more cost effective, way better morale, less attrition, easier to hire. And if you're looking to sell or if you're buying a business and looking to run it and be more working on the business than in the business, I mean, the best practices for remote first lead to what you want, whether you choose to be in person or remote or hybrid. So, yeah. Amen. Awesome. Love awesome. It. Well, uh, we've got another guest that has come in. <laughs> Gosh, you're guest heavy. So that, that means one of us has to go. So I'll, I'll, you'll phase me out here when you're ready, sir. Well, uh, Patrick, how are you today? David, I'm great. It's good to see you. How are you? Um, I'm doing great. Unfortunately, Aaron's already hired uh, a bookkeeping service. Uh, <laughs> Patrick is with Apple Tree. Uh, why don't you give people a quick introduction, uh, Patrick, and let everyone know uh, who you are? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I own Apple Tree and we do small business bookkeeping and tax and work with a lot of acquisition entrepreneurs and other small businesses. Um, and I've bought three firms myself. So I kind of know the the journey that, you know, all these folks are on trying to buy and run a small business. And um, thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, we I were have just a talking- good question for Patrick, oh, yeah. David. Because as just we were just talking about, my CPA, uh, US-based, uh, shared with me and I've heard it from others, speaking of the tight labor market, that there's going to be a shortage of CPAs, less and less young people are going into the accounting field. What's, what's your thoughts and vision on that? Yes, it's uh, during the last few years, more people left public accounting than prior years, just burnout and, and 
wanted to move into different industries or different roles. And then um, university enrollment is also down. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a crunch that's coming yeah. uh, for us tax talent. And is your firm largely remote? Cause I think when you acquired it, it was not correct. Correct. Um, we're about half and half. So about half the team is in New Hampshire. Um, and then half the team is distributed. Um, so we continue to hire remote people and then look for them locally when we can as well. Hmm. Oh, okay. That's cool. And one of the other trends that I've noticed and, and, uh, I've talked about with a few people is about how increasingly CPA firms are starting to become sort of industry siloed or, or specialized in certain categories. Is that something you guys are going through as well? We, we narrow down into service-based businesses. So we work with like professional services and home services. But if I was a CPA starting a firm from scratch, I'd probably focus on one industry mm -hmm. because, you know, it, it makes everything easier. You can speak the client's language. Um, processes are similar. The, the software that you integrate with in CRMs gets faster. And I also think clients pick accountants that way. They say, I'm a dentist, you know, dentistry, or I'm a foreign guy. Do you know this foreign CRM that I use? Um, so it's, it's definitely becoming more of a trend. Well, people will ask me for advice about how to find a, a CPA or other advisors. And that's one of the things I always say is I say, you want to find an accountant who already has a whole bunch of people they're working with in your industry mm -hmm. so that they have greater familiarity. And if there's something really off about your numbers that they might have some insight to tell you. Yeah. Based on what they've seen from their other clients. Right. Right. Yeah. Agreed. It, it, it goes a long way. And with some of our clients, um, we even do benchmarking. So we'll say um, there's two two categories where we made an acquisition where it was a niche firm. Uh, this is course creators and um, coaches, online coaches. So we can say, okay, you versus these other 15 other clients that we have, here's the percent you spend on advertising versus them. Here's your labor percent versus them. Here's your profit margin versus them, your cash on hand. And it's actually, it's, it's pretty amazing to see That's huge. Uh, how that compares. Yeah, yeah. Is in my experience, most small business people are really blind as to what's going on amongst other people in their industry. And right. some people are blessed to be part of industry associations that might be able to put some of that stuff together. But I often find it interesting that even when they are, many of them don't choose to apply it or do hmm. the work to to kind of, you know, take those numbers and benchmark themselves. It's, it's always almost always an eye opener when I work with people and point some of these things out to them. I agree. I luckily the first firm I bought was an association and you can do that um, where you, everyone has the same chart of accounts and you can submit your financials. And so I can see the financials from like 70 other firms and see top line gross profit. How much do they pay tax? How much do they pay bookkeeping? How much are they spending on marketing? And it, it blows my mind. So it's hard to do that unless the chart of accounts is similar and you know, your definition of like cogs is similar. But if you do, it's like this massive unlock. Um, and there's some products that are trying to do this off the shelf, but I don't, I don't think they do it very well because they use an industry code and, you know, it'll say like, oh, I'm a HVAC guy. And they'll just compare you to this really broad construction category, mm -hmm. which is like not, not apples to apples, you know? Yeah, I, I, you know, I've used things like RMA data before and actually Industry Canada's uh, business uh, data is available from tax returns as well. 
And, and they'll use sort of the main categories that are on the government tax form, like cost of goods sold, labor, and stuff like this. But I know from my experience that different people in these industries are categorizing things differently. They're putting yeah. different things in different places. And so I, I always just kind of take that stuff with a grain of salt because I know that a lot of the data going into there could be erroneous. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what's the biggest thing that, that you've seen from 2023? Like, what do you think is a big trend in accounting going forward here? Um, big trends. I mean, next year in the U.S., there's, you know, a whole new piece of regulation with BOI and it's gray still like what will be involved and who should do that if that's an attorney thing or that's an accounting thing. Um, so that's happening. Bonus depreciation is decreasing a bit for vehicles. Um, uh, you know, ERC is pretty much dead. Um, so if you didn't get ERC by now, like, you, you know, you, you might and, be able to And this is sort of the, the tail end of these. Yeah. And I think programs. ERC audits are coming. Um, so, you know, if you, if you went with an ERC mill and had a shaky, um, ERC application, you might, you might have an audit coming. Hopefully not, but. Uh, Can I ask you a question about that, Patrick? Yeah. Because one of the big ones that's happening there, a lot of confusion as to is that ERC refund taxable? How is it taxable? And I, I realize every situation is different, but I've heard all kinds of opinions on that as to whether it is so, or isn't taxable. Yes. Our stance is if you got ERC in 20 or 21 and then you receive the money, then you need to go back and amend those tax returns. That's what I thought. So in that respect, you need to amend that return. If you don't amend the return and you consider it taxable, are you kind of covering yourself there, if you will? Is that kind of the easy route? It's taxable. I mean, you yeah. should amend the return. I don't, that's. Got it. So yeah. not amending the returns is, is probably an error is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so you're not allowed to get money and just not declare it anywhere. <laughs> well, there was so much confusion. It really was so much confusion, and I'll tell you, this is an example of where I, I, you know, I talk to different clients. They get different opinions from CPAs. Yes, which is interesting. I often find it interesting how there can be a, such a wide variation yes. of opinion, you know, within an industry like that. Um, I suppose amongst lawyers, though, Aaron, that's kind of encouraged, right? Because they, they like to debate. <laughs> I would say lots of lawyers fail to understand that their goal was to help the client make a decision and not to leave them even more confused than they were when they, when they came in, in the first place. That. So I would say yeah, the, the good lawyers, uh, it's funny, I, I did a little listening tour. I'm going to call it listen to her the last couple of months. Uh, so in the SMB M&A space, they're so talking to bankers, lenders, potential clients, like you name it. And I mean, firstly, never people hate lawyers. It's it's more than I thought. I thought everyone hated lawyers, but it's even higher than I than I thought uh, for for obvious reasons. And and I never heard this before. That to avoid the three L's, which are landlords, lenders, and of course the last one being lawyers or I guess attorneys in the U.S. as really the, the people that kill deals or delay deals. Uh, and so I think, you know, the more that we can be focused on, you know, solutions oriented and being practical and not, hey, here's the no risk solution that I recommend that will not accomplish your goals. Uh, if we can do the better version of that, that is good for, for everybody in the ecosystem and especially the clients, obviously. Well, and, and this is important if someone's going to do a transaction, like if someone's going to be buying or selling a business is to make sure you have the right legal counsel, that right. someone who's actually uh, a deal oriented person versus 
the local uh, you know person maybe who does more litigation type stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Or or other kinds of lo- of law. Um, I know that uh, I've been in some situations that have just you know I've had to shake my head where one of my clients will insist on using a certain uh, lawyer. And the person really spends all their time doing some other domain uh, within law, and then they're they're calling me asking some pretty basic questions, and wow. I think to myself, uh, you know, how do I feel about this? I mean, this person's hired a lawyer to be represented by you know legally, and then the lawyer's asking me questions about how things are going to go down. Like that's it doesn't give me a great deal of confidence, no. or maybe I should feel you know impressed with myself. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, like it it. it, it, it it's worrisome sometimes, and I and I and I think that oftentimes people will. Um, I was actually having a conversation about this the other day. One of the downsides of licensing in any industry is that certain people, you know, will will then um, uh, outsource the burden of mm. uh, their cav- of their due diligence on their provider by by just saying, well, if this person has passed these regulatory hurdles and holds this license, they must therefore be qualified, right? Right. It's, and and so because I was thinking about it the other day because you know I went to the hospital I met with a doctor there, and uh, I didn't do any due diligence on their background or studies or how well they did in school. I just assumed that if they work at the hospital, they must know what they're doing. But you know, there's a lot of people out there who will just say, well, if the person has that CPA thing on the wall or has that law degree, they must be qualified. And the reality is, is that there's so much to know in these fields that you, you need to find a specialist a lot of the times. Yeah, it's it's a it's a challenge. I think you know it's funny. You know, lawyers are a regulated profession, uh, which the law societies will tell you, or equivalents in the U.S. Uh, will tell you, are there to protect the public. Uh, some people may reasonably argue that they are there to protect the people who are licensed, also known as the lawyers <laughs> or the attorneys. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Our competency model for lawyers, I've got to do 15 hours of what we call CPD or in the U.S. CLE, continuing professional education every year. And that's not different for doctors or other stuff. They've got their own thresholds. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a corporate lawyer. I do M&A work. I do normal corporate work for clients. I don't do family law. I don't do litigation. I don't do those things. I can get my CPD hours in family law and litigation. I'm good. Yeah. Good for the year. Um, that, you know, we're not really in a true competence framework, unfortunately. And there's a lot of talk in the more progressive parts of the profession, which is a very, very small quadrant that I spent some time in. Uh, about really like reforming all this stuff because it's not actually in the best interest of clients, the current model. A lot of the stuff, many could argue, uh, protects lawyers. And it's funny, actually, we, we had a complaint from one of the, one of our, uh, we got lawyers in different provinces in Canada, and so we're regulated by different regulators. They said, you can't write these words on your website. You're making other lawyers look bad. <laughs> and like, we're just stating that, we didn't say this back to them, but it's like, we're literally stating not only the truth, but also what the clients are thinking. Um, you know, we'd be better if we could be, you know, going back to our, how we run our, our, our firm, transparent and honest and say, look, like, this is the reality. Let's not deny that. And we're really trying to not do those things. But again, it's like, you know, a lot of people look at vulnerability or transparency as a negative. To me, these things are actually positives to say, look, like, we know we're not perfect, um, but we're working on this and, and we're doing these things. But but that is not a widely shared view in the legal profession. Let's put it that way. Mm. Yeah. Hey, David, I'm going to uh, drop off unless there's anything else you uh, wanted to ask me. Or No, it's great share. to see you, Henry. We'll uh, we'll put the link to uh, to your website in the show notes after I'm done. Thank I'll you. update Thank it with, with everyone's link because obviously we've got a lot of great guests here today. And the How of Business is, uh, is one of my favorite podcasts. I tune in and listen Thank to you. you all the time. So I would encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, and you talk to a lot of business owners about their stories and you also talk a lot of uh, you know about the really the how to's it's it's a mm-hmm. perfect title 
Yeah, your episode, you were on just, you've been on my show four times now. I was doing the research. I know, I'm one away from the jacket. You're one away from the jacket. You get a pin for now. Uh, But that last episode, we talked about buy versus build, and that has been one of the most popular episodes here this year. Ah, cool. Cool. So that topic of do I consider buying versus building is still one that a lot of people are very interested in. Awesome. Good all to right, see you. Merry Christmas. Great holiday. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on. Great to listen, and I'll continue listening for the rest of the day. You all take care now. Awesome. Bye, Thanks. Henry. Bye. Cool. Um, and uh, sorry, what were we talking about? We're just uh, talking on what's happening in accounting, talking about attorneys, finding a specialist, you know, to help with your deal. So what are you seeing, David? Are you seeing any trends right now or prices coming down? Is more seller financing happening? What's yeah, well, we were talking about that a little bit earlier in the show. Uh, I'm seeing uh, prices not coming down, but uh, larger amounts of seller financing at at we'll call it below market rates. You know, so so if people have to borrow at the bank at ten percent, they can't pay the price. But if the seller or the seller will lend them the money at six and a half, they can pay the price. Yeah, and, and what's and, the term? It's like a depends okay. on the amount of money. So. I mean, I've seen, I've, I saw one deal where someone was doing, a, it was a 60% of the deal with seller finance and they were doing it over 10 years. Jeez. <laughs> they, it was, but, but there was no bank at all. Yeah. So, so the 40% was equity. The, the, that seller is in first position in security and obviously has confidence in the buyer and knows yeah. that the buyer is going to be successful and thinks that the business is going to be successful. And so that, that magnitude of a loan is just simply has to have a longer amortization for it to to make sense. Yeah, got it. Yeah, and and you've done some acquisitions uh, amongst CPA, uh, amongst accounting and bookkeeping firms. Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds of terms are you seeing in that field? Because uh, just a couple of years ago, I was crossing paths with a bunch of CPA firm deals, and a lot of the sellers wanted all cash. They wanted like you know, equivalent of one-time sales. People were acting very sticky, um, which was not the case, you know, just a few years earlier than that. It's almost like everything tightened up there just a couple years ago with the cheap money, which I guess makes sense. But are are you seeing people get more realistic again in in the space that you're in? The modern firms are going fast and they're going for high multiples. I don't know why accounting firms trade on revenue multiple versus most other businesses trading on cash flow, but that's the way they are. So that's the way it is. So, you know, the range is typically like a 0.8 to 1.5 and the modern firms that are cloud-based subscription style billing, like those are going for 1.5 or more um, because there's P groups and a lot of people that are after those and um, uh, they're easier to integrate. So, um, those prices aren't coming down. I think with the, you, you know, you mean versus a firm where people still go and drop off boxes of documents. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like more paper, you know, kind of old school firm or their prices or their pricing models aren't as modern. Um, and geographically are, based. So these yeah. are like, I'm the accountant of this town and I will take any business in the town. Right. Yeah. So th- those are, you know, still trading around a one X, but I think, you know, you're still seeing a good amount of seller financing. Um, and uh, a lot of people are just burnt out over the past few years. Um, mm. So all that being said, those those two things aren't black and white. It's not like cloud or not cloud. You know, there's a lot of, even if they're local brick and mortar firms that 
you know, have some cloud tendencies. So, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, well, you know, interestingly enough, before the show, I did some research about, you know, what people are saying about the coming year. And one of the trends that was highlighted in one of these articles I looked at was that AI was going to start to allow for mass customization, sort of, sort of, you know, we talked about how work at one time was very bespoke and then people tried to make more productized services, right? Um, and then that led to service providers being able to do more flat fee work. Aaron, you mentioned that uh, earlier today, sort of offering a flat price for certain things. And now they're talking about mass customization, being able to sort of tailor things to individuals. Like, are, are you seeing anything like that? Because, I mean, like every business needs some kind of accounting, bookkeeping, tax prep kind of service. Mm-hmm. And so anything like that in your space? I think... AI will help us um, in the sense that it'll allow us to take some of the um, lower level work off our plate and and interact with the client better. I still have yet to see something with AI this year that's like, oh wow, let's we have to go use that right now. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's you know some good tools that will help you answer client questions or like you know cater some emails, but there's not really anything that's replacing humans on bookkeeping where there's a little bit of complexity yet. Yeah. Um, so all these things will accelerate very quickly, but um, uh, I think that's a good way to put it. You know, you, if, if the grunt work or the heavy lifting is done by AI, then you can customize and, and have a better client experience for that higher level work. Well, you know, I, I'm becoming more and more of a fan of AI, you know, because I'm, I'm seeing how it can take some very, um, you know, sort of grunt work type stuff and kind of make it easier. And so I was, I was looking for some special things that I could do here for the Christmas Eve special. And so I started playing around on ChatGTP uh, and I had it uh, compose a poem about the special would you like to hear that yeah absolutely yeah okay so so here we go and i've got it here on the next screen here so so excuse me while i look over it says in the hush of christmas eve a green a screen aglow the david c barnett special hearts all aflow a live stream event a beacon of light celebrating small business shining so bright with a twinkle in his eye and a smile so wide david c barnett invites us all inside to witness the magic of this special night where dreams take flight, the future ignites. Amidst the carols and the twinkling tree, small businesses shine for all to see. Their stories, their passions, their boundless grace in this festive virtual heartwarming space. From cozy cafes to artisans delight, each tale unfolds a wondrous sight. The dreamers and doers, they take the stage, their hopes and their dreams, their wisdom, their sage. It keeps going. With bells on their doors and hearts full of cheer, they toil and they strive throughout the year. In every product and service they create, a piece of their soul, a bit of their fate. For it's not just commerce, it's love and art, a labor of passion from the very start. And David, our guide, with warmth and care, shares their stories, their dreams laid bare. The viewers around from far and near join hands in spirit spreading holiday cheer, supporting these businesses big and small in this live stream special, a gift to all. So as snowflakes fall and stars align 
In the heart of the holiday season's design, we gather together, one and all, for the David C. Barnett Christmas Eve special call. A toast to small businesses, their dreams alive. May they thrive and flourish. May they continue to strive. In this live stream's glow, we find hope anew. Merry Christmas to all and to dreams that come true. Holy cow. That, it would have taken me weeks to write that. That's incredible. And the, yeah. just the, you know, some of the emotional words in there that I definitely agree with, like small businesses pouring their soul into things and like cafes to artisans to, you know. Like, yeah. I totally agree. That's incredible. I, I, you know, so like, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I made a, I made a, a video about AI and small business search. And, and, you know, I think as far as, you know, sort of wordsmithing and composing stuff, there's definitely something there that is going to be making a big impact and continue to make a big impact here in the coming year. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I've seen uh, like on Twitter, some there, there's some lawyers on Twitter who have been talking about how uh, they've been using some of this generative stuff. Like Aaron, are, are, are you guys taking advantage of that in your firm? Yeah, we definitely use it in, in different ways. Um, I guess there's, you know, we run a normal business like anyone who has a business. So there's the the legal work we do, and then there's the everything else internally. Um, so I'll give an example of uh, even this past week, we needed to. There's a uh, because we're in Quebec, there are some new French language law rules that are lots of fun, and that means a lot of stuff has to be translated, including lots of things that most of our clients uh, are not, don't speak French. Let's put it that way, but a good chunk also do, and we've we've got to do it to be compliant. So we experimented with a couple options. We've got lots of bilingual lawyers, but like I don't really, really want to waste their time translating something that like doesn't need their expertise. You know, or they don't want to pay them for that. Yeah. There's your standard stuff on Upwork. So we reached out to a couple of well-rated people. Uh, then I had our French lawyers review it. They were not happy with the translation. It was not up to par. Eventual solution: played around with some prompts in uh, a ChatGPT, and that plus a little skim by one of our lawyers was way better than the people offshore, a whole lot faster and, and much easier that way. So that's just yeah. an example on the non-legal side. We use some legal programs like Legal Tech that does have AI built in. And we're using, I would say, Gen AI for, for different things. But I, I go back to everything where it's like, you know, if you've got good documentation, what we were talking about before, David, so like we're building a lot of stuff, then you can do some fun stuff with AI. And so I'm excited for what we'll be doing next year to help clients, to help ourselves, and really to provide, you know, continually great value, efficient legal services, which is not the norm in the legal profession. Bien joué. Exactly. <laughs> Best friend for well played. I didn't have to put that in chat GPT, but that's uh, that's amazing that it came back that well because translation is like... Translation is, is tricky for sure. And I mean, uh, all, yeah. all that to say is, you know, we're constantly looking to say, look, are, are there solutions here to real problems rather than trying to find a... Uh, a, a whatever it is, solution search of a problem or whatever whatever it is. We don't want that. We want to have problems say, hey, is there an AI solution here that could be fully or a part of the yeah. solution? I mean, I've seen some other examples on Twitter that didn't cross my mind that were amazing use cases. Uh, There's a tree service guy who dumped all his call recordings into ChatGPT and just said, like, what days are we missing calls and, like, what percentage of calls get answered? And it spit out this report. And I was like, I never would have thought of that. And that is, like, amazingly useful, you know? Um, Absolutely. We we have someone else who's knocking okay. at the door. So and I think I've got to take off here anyways, David. It's been all so right, great. All right, Aaron. Good to see you, man. Have a great Thanks day. So much, and, Merry uh, Christmas. Happy holidays, everyone. See you later. Patrick, okay. uh, just stick around for a few more minutes. Sure. Uh, we've got we've got Lisa Forrest from Live Oak Bank. How are you today, Lisa? Oh, I can't hear you. You're on mute. Here we go. There you go. How are you today? I'm doing well. Hey, Patrick. 
Lisa, good to see you. Yeah. Oh, great. You guys know each other? Yeah. Awesome. So um, Merry Christmas. Are you getting Thank all set? You. you got your gifts wrapped and everything? Um, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm kind of this time of year. I'm usually it's a combination of exhausted and excited. I don't know what that mashup is. Exhausted or excited. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, because lenders, even though I'm in the I'm very honored that I was in the one of the three L's landlords, lawyers and lenders. That was a great segue. Uh, you know, we're usually working all the way to the end of the year to get all of our deals closed uh, this time of year. So uh, but I'm excited about 2024. Well, you know, 2023 was an exciting year in banking. I, I, before the show, I just did some searches for headlines and things. And of course, one of the big headlines that came up, of course, was the fact that three banks failed like in 2023. And, uh, you know, like, how does someone in banking feel when they hear those kinds of headlines? Like, <clears throat> I mean, nothing to do with your bank, obviously, but when you hear that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, and I think you just have to kind of you know, understand what all the, the macroeconomics are around that. Um, quite frankly, I think those of us sort of in this lower middle market, kind of SBA land, uh, you know, which I, I focus on, I don't think we thought a second about it. Um, there are luckily people at my bank in particular that are really good with the balance sheet, really mm. good about our bank's liquidity. Um, we're really well managed. The, the base employee, we never really worried about it at all. And I think the, the, the dynamics were so different than compared to say a 2008, just so much different that um, it, and I know it affected a lot of people. There were a lot of employees impacted, but at least for, I think those in the, the SBA world, I don't think mm. it impacted us very much. Yeah. I, I don't know if any of those banks were really players much in the SBA world, were they? Yeah. They were more like tech startup kind of the Silicon Valley one, uh, especially yeah. was like a tech uh, scene bank. Um, and so, so what, what do you foresee in your crystal ball for next year? So, you know, kind of looking back into 2023 and the things that maybe we struggled with, um, one, when we started same time last year, you know, beginning of 2023, end of 2022 with interest rates, I mean, the buying power of an SBA buyer, um, decreased by about 22%. I mean, on a if you're trying to get a 1.25 debt service coverage on an SBA loan, you could afford basically a million dollars less on a transaction. So <clears throat> I, I made a bet earlier in the year that by the end of this year, we would have totally been fully stabilized. You know, sellers, we would have, the market would have adjusted. I thought it was going to adjust a lot faster, but maybe I was just being really, really optimistic. So I think in 2024, I think we're a lot better um, as sort of an ecosystem between the, the buyers and the lenders, maybe not so much the sellers yet, but uh, between the buyers and the lenders, I think we're have a much better sense of how to get You mean as far as what prices make sense? Yeah. And how to afford yeah. those prices on a structure. Um, I really thought that sellers would have adjusted on prices a little bit faster, but um, I think that we've got just so many buyers and, and that's fantastic. I mean, that's not, you know, that that is just a fact. We have so many buyers in the market that have really um, decided that becoming the next generation of entrepreneurs is exactly what they want to do and where they need to be. So I think mm. we've got buyers where sellers aren't having to adjust the price. Uh, quite it, yet. I'll tell you, it's tough for sellers to get their head around a lower price, um, even um, if uh, let me give you an example. Let's say somebody, uh, a, a broker, for example, looks at a business and makes an error in in telling 
the seller what it might fetch in the market. Let's say they make some kind of calculation error and they give them a number that's too high. Um, and then later the broker says, oh, I made an error. Uh, in reality, this is the price. Even that series of events can ca will cause a seller to want to stick to that higher flag, that, that upper bound that's been set. Um, because once you tell someone that it's worth a certain amount of money, uh, they start to spend that money in their mind. They start to they start to say, "Well, I'm going to buy the RV and the you know condo in Florida and all this kind of stuff." And people have to go through a a I believe it's kind of like a mourning process. Like, you know, you, you see the future, you see these pathways of what could be laid out in front of you of what you could do and what your life is going to look like. And then when somebody comes and says, "Actually, that's not possible," no, um, it's tough for a lot of people, and so they'll they'll stick on those things and they, they don't want to move um, regardless of how logical your arguments and demonstrations can be. Either mm -hmm. something's got to come along to make them increase their level of motivation. Um, and usually well, it's and just sometimes, yeah, And sometimes emotion and math don't match too. You yeah. know, also emotionally, this is the number that I think or I was counting on, but here's the math and so you've got to find other ways, maybe more equity, maybe a longer term seller note. Maybe it used to be a five year AM. Maybe it's a 10 year AM to make that work. Or maybe there's mm -hmm. more seller um, standby with no principal and interest and maybe more equity. And maybe you as the bank, you have to take less debt service coverage and decide for yourself that that's OK. So there's there's lots of you know, there's a few variables you can move in that map. But then sometimes um, the math uh, just doesn't weigh out. So if you're if you're looking at deals now, are you looking at 22 financials and you're waiting for 23 to come in, or do you look at like interim for the year, or how do you like these different times of the year where you don't have like a yeah. recent year of closing? How do you how do you judge 23 of you? Well, Patrick, we're going to be waiting on you because everyone is going to want their 2023 numbers to be finally collated <laughs> and firmed up. So now you're going to be busy, really busy in January. We're going to be waiting on you for all that accounting. So usually this time of year, I mean, the deals that are closing are, are closed and you, you've decided that you're going to probably take an interim number um, for closing now. But looking at if you're trying to get your deal closed in the first quarter, then you're probably going into underwriting with an estimate of where 2023 is going to come out. And then you're either getting a Q of E that proves out 2023 or a tax return or a 2023 tax return plus a Q of E. Um, so this time of year, you're, you're just, you're, I'm already working on my, my June, you know, closings anyway, you know, at, given the kind of cadence on how things work. So we're, we're waiting on 2023 tax returns now. For our we have a question from Hank, Lisa, um, who, who wants to know, he looks a lot, awful lot like a guy I know named Arnold, but Hank asks, are clients anticipating rates dropping in 24, therefore holding back on lending until then? You know, our, I mean, like I, I'm hearing in the real estate investing world, people are talking about rate cuts and stuff. I don't uh, share the opinion that we're going to have any rate cuts. I think rates are normal now. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Are there any serious conversations about anyone willing to bet on things going down? And of course, I'm on the front end production side. I'm not in the old, uh, yeah. you know, economist um, lane. But and even if interest rates do come down, I don't think they're coming down very much. 
Um, no. And I, I heard on your earlier session too, and I'm I'm actually a little older than you, David. So I remember when a ten and a half percent or eleven percent interest rate on your SBA loan was normal. It was stabilized. So mm-hmm. I think versus waiting for interest rates to come back down, I think it's just a matter of understanding how we're going to work with the interest rates we have today. And you know, these are the, now these are what the structures look like, and it's taken a, a whole year to really kind of figure out what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that the deal has to make sense today. Um, and what I always tell my buyers is uh, the best thing you can do is make a deal that works for you and sellers can choose to participate. That's, that's all you can do. Like, right. yeah. I got you a Christmas gift. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. It's a limerick. Oh, it's, it's not long like it's not it's not long like the last poem. So, okay, so it's about buying a business with an SBA loan. So here it goes. Okay. With dreams of a small biz in my sight, an SBA loan felt just right. I applied with a grin for my venture to begin. Now I'm running my ship through the night. Nice. <laughs> Great. Oh, I was I was waiting for you to have me fill in that last um, word that rhymed with no, no, sight, no. right? So I was very happy. Listen, that. around here, Chat GTP writes all the poetry. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you do you have that. any uh, do you have any crazy stragglers trying to close a deal before year end, Lisa? Or oh, we always do. We always do. But I, you know, I think everything's going to get done. Um, and sometimes, you know, you have those deals where you really did try. And other than if you've got some big tax consequence, usually if it kind of trickles into the first week of January, for yeah. the most part, you know, no one's, it's going to be okay as long as everyone's doing their best. But we really do try to, hey, if we're, if we're trying to fund on the 31st, we're really trying to make that happen. But sometimes right. they trickle in. But yeah. Um, My quick story, if it's okay. Yeah. My first one, um, he, he wanted to close on December 31st, like a true accountant, like clean break on the year. And we had everything ready and we we're trying to be early because everyone said, don't do it during the holidays. We had everything except the landlord release on the office. Mm. And I didn't know that was a thing. And then the landlord was out of the country and also didn't want to sign it. He's like, what? No, I don't want to agree to this, that the SBA would have first rights. Yeah. You've uh, got to come on my property. What are you talking about? Yeah. And uh, eventually we were just like, look, this business is getting sold. You're going to keep a good tenant sign the form and um of all the things that we thought could have like delayed it like that was the one thing that was like hanging us up at the end and then we we finally got it from him but and that's the thing i tell everybody and it doesn't matter what time of year you're closing there's always going to be the one thing and your one thing on your loan closing is going to be different from someone else's and as much as we try to prepare people you know we can't we can't guess what your thing is going to be and sometimes you think you've hit the thing oh this is the thing it no this isn't this is the thing and it's like <laughs> you thought that was the thing but this is going to be the thing everyone has a thing in their deal and you just got to be patient and you know surround yourself with people that maybe have done this a time or two and panic panic slowly is kind of what i try to say yeah i i, I often would run into people who had this idea that they wanted to close deals on December 31st. And I, I don't, I, is it because people just panic at the idea of how to deal with a, maybe a fiscal year that only has two months in it or something like that? Like people just don't like that sort of abnormal 
I don't know. Stuff like I, you know, I've been closing deals for you know decades now, and whether it closes on the eleventh or the fifteenth or the twenty second, you know, at the end of the day, you don't even like Patrick. Do you remember which? Well, you probably remember which day your deal closed, but do you we, really? We remember? ended up closing on time. We closed on the thirty first. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you were a thirty first Yeah. Okay. Good. But so many deals close on the eighth or the. 12th or you know whatever it closes when it's ready but hey man especially when it's your first time going through it i just try to respect everyone's sort of emotional connection to whatever it is that you know they're trying to think about and and can you tell us a little bit about the differences between dealing with someone doing their first deal and getting their first loan versus someone who has been through it before Oh yeah, for the big difference. Um, and I like both. I like both. About 30% kind of of my deal flow on any given year is uh, additional loans to our existing clients that are now deal number two, deal number three, what have you. So we love the strategic acquirer and it's so much different. Uh, the confidence level just in our acquirer to know what's a deal killer, what to walk on, what to just you know, chill out on and it's going to be okay. You know exactly how to write your purchase and sale agreement or your LOI. You know then if it's in the same industry, all the things that you really grind, had you grinding on your first transaction, you know whether that's a real thing or not. You know the margins, you know, uh, you know all of the players, you probably know all your competition now, you know all the suppliers. So deal number two and three, it just feels so much different, just so, so much different for clients. And um, it's something that we usually kind of have a little chuckle about, especially if I did the, the first loan. We kind of go down memory lane and laugh about, do you remember when that thing was so important to you? And then now you're not even thinking about it. So it's all it's a it's kind of a good, um, good um, chuckle and a good process when you're helping someone do number two and three. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, this is great. And so, like, I remember you came and spoke with me in the spring. We did a live stream and you were talking about how the deal flow had kind of had kind of declined. Yeah. Um, I know that rates are still high and everything, but has that that pipeline refilled and is the this the sort of the um, the number of, of applications, and everything come back for you? Yeah, definitely. And I know I was a little scroogey at the beginning of the year, but now I'm like super happy and um, I've got my <laughs> fun little personality back now. <laughs> um, yeah, the beginning of the year, it was dicey, but I, you know, I've been through cycles before, so I wasn't panicking and you just have to stay disciplined and, and you just needed the market to start stabilizing and adjusting. And, and so now our pipeline going into 24, it's really nicely robust. And, you know, there were some changes with the SBA SOPs that really had us, the whole community, whether you're a lender, a buyer, the brokers, sellers, the whole SOP changes, CPAs, you know, everybody had everyone um, really kind of running for months, months and months and months. And that's kind of added to some of the exhaustion of the year. But I think we've we kind of know what they are now. I think they're going to stay. This is what they look like. All the lenders. I think we've all now had a chance to figure out what we think about it, what we all think about it and how we're going to apply those. That added a little bit of extra difficulty uh, to the year, and plus the interest rate increases. Um, yeah, the first, you know, kind of couple quarters, first half of the year was really, was really tough. But we've ended up having a really nice year. Just speaking for, you know, Live Oak Bank, um, we've had a really, really nice year. That's rebounding in 2024. Like I said, I'm, I'm real excited about it. Well, this is awesome, uh, and uh, we'll have to get you to come back and tell some of the stories of some of the deals that you get done here as we go into the new year. Um, but I've got a bunch more people knocking on my door. Let's so 
uh, uh, Patrick, we'll, we'll, we'll see you later and, uh, best of luck. Happy, happy holidays to you. And, uh, let's, uh, let's see who's knocking. Hey, it's Mark Willis. How you doing, Mark? Hey there. Let me zoom out here. Good to see you guys. There you go. There you go. Right. So, so Mark, you're like the channel sponsor. How are you doing? Well, it's uh, it's been a happy Merry Christmas so far. Enjoying the holiday season, and I, I got the the uh, the best shirt I think I could find for my uh, for my outfit here. I don't know if you can read this. Can you guys read that? It says. <laughs> Due to inflation, this is my Halloween costume, Thanksgiving shirt, and Christmas sweater. You know, it's funny because I was making an inflation joke the other day because my son grew uh, four and a half inches over the summer. And I, you know, joked that he's growing at the rate of inflation uh, <laughs> just because he's that age, right? Now, did he think that was a funny joke? Well, he doesn't really get it. You know? okay. And when I when I explained inflation to him a couple of years ago, he raised the price of what he charged me to mow my lawn. So I've, I've decided I'm not going to, I'm not really going to, you know, do that anymore and, and talk anymore about inflation with him because it costs me money. <laughs> The difference with uh, teenagers and government inflation is one stops, one continues forever. Um, but uh, what's so interesting is it didn't always used to be that way. You know, we lived just fine without inflation. In fact, deflation was the name of the game for about 100 years, especially the Gilded Age after the Civil War up till about 19, oh, 1920 or so. Uh, there's lowering prices and you know what a shocker that would be you know for us to have today i don't understand why that's such a bad thing like why it's so terrible to have lower prices you know if all of a sudden your groceries became less expensive yeah you know it, it's it's you're right uh, and i often wonder when people are talking in the news about how you know uh, central bank targets a certain inflation rate and and uh, you know we don't want to get it too low and i'm like you know if everything got cheaper every year wouldn't that be better like you know yeah yeah that's, which that's it did right yeah there's, there's definitely a, a a concern out there that if prices go to i mean that's the natural order of things i would say you know to have lowering prices through competition that's what helps bring i think more and more people to the marketplace and and it brings more people to financial like uh abundance you know the the first uh, microwave was probably a hundred times more expensive than the stuff we can buy today. Uh, so there is, there is, you know, positive things when, when we can lower prices. We've got Brandon is showing up here too. Uh, Brandon, hey Brandon. Uh, a, a part of your team, Mark. And, uh, you want to mention microwaves. I remember my family's first microwave back probably in the early 1980s. I think my dad told me it cost $1,200 and it was giant. And my mother was convinced that she was going to cook every meal in this thing. And there's one thing I would not recommend to anyone. And that is a microwaved chicken. Um, they, yeah, they, they, they tried, listen, they tried. And, uh, in f fun fact, I do not own one. I, I use an oven and a stovetop and a little toaster oven for everything here. Because I just don't like the consistency. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. If you can, uh, if you can find other ways, we actually found you can reheat in a pressure cooker, uh, an instant pot. You can do a pretty cool reheat in just a few minutes. So uh, you know, if you're still looking for Christmas presents, uh, that's one thing you could try out. And then, of course, the air fryer has taken over the the um, the cooking around this house too. So, but yeah, Brandon, great to see you, man. Welcome. Hey. I, I got my sweater on. There we go. It, uh, I tried to get an ugly sweater. 
um, for Christmas. It's really, or, you know, for our podcast and YouTube as well. It's really hard to find an ugly sweater when you're looking for one. <laughs> um. <laughs> so you guys are both bank on yourself professionals. And over the last year, you've been meeting a lot of people from this audience who've been reaching out to try to learn a little bit about how they might be able to implement this strategy to uh, take better care of their money. And I'm just wondering if you might want to share a couple of the stories of, of some of the people that you've helped. Sure. Brandon, do you want to jump in first or do you want me to give it a go? Uh, you can go ahead first. Yeah, no problem. You know, we, we've had a, a number of people. It's actually been quite surprising, overwhelming in a good way. How many people have reached out as a result of our work together? David. And so thank you again. And, and it's an honor to be a sponsor uh, of your group and of this of this day. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And there's been so many people who have expressed an interest in some of the counterintuitive strategies. I think the average way of kind of limping our way through our financial lives is just proven to not work. And there's a number of reasons why, including some of the more recent volatility we've seen and inflation and more. Uh, but some of the counterintuitive strategies oftentimes go back a long way, you know, 200 plus years uh, in, in our countries and, and even further back still, if you look uh, further into history books. And so there was a gentleman who recently reached out to me. He had received a pretty sizable windfall uh, from, you know, a, a previous encounter he had had and he had didn't know what to do with it, but he knew he wanted to do what you teach in terms of helping to find and purchase several businesses that's on his mind right now. Uh, and so he had this chunk of money and his plan was to put it to work in, in finding a business or two. However, he had, he was concerned that, Hey, you know what, what if this business goes South? You know, he didn't mm -hmm. ever expect to get a windfall like this ever again, in his lifetime. So we talked about how you could use a little known variation of dividend paying whole life insurance to accelerate and, and really give yourself the option to buying a business without having that, I guess, nagging feeling that, that uh, empty feeling in your bank account afterwards. Uh, so the idea with bank on yourself, for those not familiar, is by setting up a properly structured whole life insurance policy, uh, you're able to put money into something that then grows guaranteed every single year and you have liquid access to that guaranteed bucket of money that is not tied to any sort of market or risk exposure to any sort of market. So you can use that, I'd say, guaranteed line of credit to yourself to then borrow against it and make a purchase, or in his case, a, an investment in a business. And the, uh, the advantage there, and what really captured his attention was that his money would continue to grow for him even on the capital he had borrowed out to go buy that business. So not only does he get his business that he's purchased, but he still has the underlying earning asset, the life insurance cash value growing as if he had never touched a dime of it. Yeah. To me, that's like, you know, it's like a Christmas present right there to have that uninterrupted compounding. And I get the opportunity to, to participate in this business venture. So well, he was it's like, it's like using capital in two places at the same time. That's right. right. Yeah like two two christmas presents oh that's that. right awesome and so so um so you're able to help him out and uh, i've heard back from other people in the audience that that have done this similar with you as well and so uh, you know 
I, I, and this is one of the reasons why uh, I agreed to, to to have you be the channel sponsor because uh, I just know from my own personal experience with the strategy and doing it myself just how effective it is and and how nice it is to have invested in something that isn't subject to market volatility you know stock market going up and down and everything like this like it it doesn't matter what the stock market does I get my statement every year from my insurance company and it's like you know, to change, to change, just sort of this constant ratcheting up of what that value is. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The the really the problem with most of the people who who experience the oso average, I, I would say the oso average way of getting through their financial life is they're tying themselves down in number of in a number of ways. You know, it's like trying to tie down Santa's bag of toys on the back of his sleigh. You don't realize, or it's like Gulliver, you know, whenever he's tying, being tied down by those little tiny little dudes in that island, you don't realize it, but one after the other, you're tying yourself down. What do I mean? I'm talking about the fees inside your regular retirement account that tie you down and sap your strength like Gulliver and on those strings. I'm talking about the volatility of the market. I had someone the other day think that they could just fall off a log and get 12% a year. Mm. in their stock market portfolio. And we had to show and explain, and I, I could share it with you here today if we end up having time for it, how the real return is very different than the uh, average return of, let's say, the S&P 500. Uh, we yeah. talked about taxes going up too. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no it's, it's. Uh, I mean, we're not going to get into that kind of stuff today, but, um, you know, I think one of the great illustrations that uh, that you've pointed out that I've heard, maybe I've heard this on your on your podcast, is that if you have, you know, something go uh, up by 100% and then down by 50%, you have the same amount of money, um, you know, at the start and the end of that. But the average between 50 and 100 is 75. So, you know, you could say that was a 75% average rate of return, but you actually have the same amount of money at the end. Or yeah. no, sorry, 100% up and 50% down. Yeah, the average, I guess, would be 25%. Yeah, you, you were very, I mean, that's exactly right. Most people go their whole life without realizing that simple truth uh, the and and it it's devastating to their outcome because they plan for oh yeah I don't have to save so much I can throw a hundred bucks a year into my four hundred one k and end up with ten million bucks because of magical rates of return like that so you're right mm. there, there's a there's all these different fees taxes volatility myths like the average rates of return all that gets I guess um, sapping our strength as we try to reach our financial goals but if we can use a bank on yourself policy it can really give you a, a a much more sane way to get the job done and you get to have fun with some of the cool things that david's been teaching in terms of buying or selling your business so now i mean people who are interested in learning more uh, you and i have recorded uh like i think there's five different interviews we've done over the years and then we also recorded kind of a one hour encapsulated here's how this works and it's all over at newbankingsolution.com uh, where people can go there and they and and so please in the audience if you're if you're interested about this thing if it sounds interesting or different to you you know this is the message that's at the end of every one of my videos um, and the reason it's there is because uh, I know it works and so uh, head over to newbankingsolution.com check out the videos and then when you're there you can click a button you can book a 15 minute call with Mark or one of his team members and you brought Brandon along uh, who's on your team. And so, you know, Brandon, how long have you been uh, a part of Mark's team and doing this kind of strategy with people? Yeah, so I'll, I'll say first thing is I am a policyholder first. We, we started this 
uh, about 10 years ago. I know because it was December 1st, uh, 10 years ago that I reached our 10 year mark in our policy. We had met Mark through, um, faith connection. He, he actually had an, uh, office space in our, in our coffee shop area, uh, not in the coffee shop. He actually had an office, but, uh, adjoining and we became good friends. We ended up watching a documentary about this concept, and that's what really uh, changed my life. Is saying, "Oh wow, this is this is this is how come no one ever told us about this?" Now, I'm a business owner, uh, and I know you talk a lot about business owners. My first business was a coffee shop. Don't recommend uh, if you want to be rich, don't start a coffee shop. Start something <laughs> else. Um, right? That was uh, MJ DeMarco wrote a book. Uh, millionaire fast lane and in there he says a couple times don't start a coffee shop anyway i, I thought it was going to be good but There's the gross margins are so huge brandon oh, i mean amazing. i mean you charge two dollars for a cup of coffee that costs a nickel to make i mean how can you not make so much money at that <laughs> yeah I, i'm not going to go there but um yeah there, it's, there it's was, when people learn about overhead right Right. And there was so much. And I knew my biggest risk was me. My biggest investment was me. And in order to start the business, there was a lot of 0% interest for 12 months and to build the business. And then you get the credit card statements after a year because you thought it was going to go super fast to build you, up. You credit. thought you'd make the money before you had to make the pay the, yeah. before the interest came back. Yeah. 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 So we started ours and, and ultimately five or so years later, we ended up selling the business. I applied to work with Mark. Uh, he said no because I was too entrepreneurial, uh, <laughs> which is probably wise in his wisdom. But then we started our own agent. So Mark is our mentor. Uh, we've been working with him for about six years now um, and love what we do because we think about profit first, uh, which I know you have a profit first guy on here, uh, Rocky. Yeah, Rocky was on in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we think about profit first. I'm profit first certified as well, but also how does it fit within your uh, banking yourself policy, you know, and, and leverage and using it. The other thing I think a lot about is uh, a lot of people are in their, I'd say, 60s, 70s, starting to realize that what was told isn't actually happening accurate and isn't working for them. And I want to work with younger people who are starting businesses, wanting to sell businesses and, and not have to wait until they're 60 to finally decide to do this thing because now their money's out of jail. Right. How do we well, build I this? Heard, I heard this. I heard a crazy statistic um, and I can't remember exactly where I was listening to it, but it was like the average person in their 50s has something like a hundred grand or something in their 401k or their RSP in Canada. And and I was just, I was thinking to myself, you know, for somebody to spend 30 years in the workforce to be always contributing and supposedly to get it, be getting these rates of return from the, from the markets, how can people be at that point in life and have so little? And, and I think it, you know, in my own experience, like, I mean, I've been interested at different points in my life in the stock market and investing and learning about mutual funds and all that kind of stuff. And I put money into these things and I bought and I've sold them. Um, and I, I got to be honest, like I've never had a great deal of success with that stuff either. It's, it's always, um, a re it's always wrestling with your own emotions, right? 
it's always like you see something go up and you feel good and you see something go down and you feel afraid, scared, you're worried that something's going to happen. Um, yeah. And, you know, for most people, they're going to act on those feelings and, and they're going to get them wrong. They're going to, they're going to sell when things go down and when probably is the time to buy and they're going to, they're not going to buy when things go up, which is probably the time to get out. Uh, I, I see the same thing in small business where people will have these record years or year after year, they're making all kinds of money and you say to them, well, now you should sell because you can tell the best story right now, but they yeah. don't want to because they're making all kinds of money, right? Yeah, well, that, the, the best the best time to get out is when you're at the top. You know, it's the yeah. casino. You know, you when you cash out, it's when you got chips and you can walk away. But um, you got to know when to hold them. Not got to know when to fold them. When to walk away and when to run. And most people, they get that capitulation phase at the bottom of the market, and they have that greed at the top of the market. And it's it's almost the exact opposite. Uh, you know, would be would be. Be, be any any other option besides what they take would give them a better outcome uh, but unfortunately that's not the case why do you guys think that is i i don't know i you know I, and i don't have any psychologists lined up to come on today unfortunately <laughs> um i just know that um you can work on training yourself to behave differently and i think some people just never do and i think for the people who understand themselves and maybe understand they're always going to wrestle with it it's best to find a methodology or a different kind of tool that just removes it i, I yeah. mean this is this is why i like you know uh, participating in whole life policies because i just pay the premium every year and every year i get a statement saying it went up and um you know i don't have to pay attention to the stock market or anything like that it just, yeah. it, it just, just outsources that whole thing. Paying attention to ourselves is important, right? And so I, I know I sold the business. And the reason I sold it was because, um, well, um, we were going to have a child. It's illegal to have a baby behind the bar, uh, <laughs> one thing. And like knowing certain things needed to change. But I gave everything. And I said, for five years, we are going to commit everything to this and there, there's no, we're going to burn the, the ships. We're going to put everything into it. And we did, but it was still hard to sell something you created from zero to not to something, even though it wasn't valued that much uh, in the grand scheme of things, it was still hard to almost sell your first child to have a child. How many people can walk away from their business with money in their pocket, Brandon? I mean, that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah. And I got to just say it was it was my my uh, awesome operating uh, operations officer and, and wife who really found out like, OK, we can't bring Brandon into our into our practice. We need him to help start another practice yep. uh, because she saw that entrepreneurial spirit in you. And and I think she even said, hey, we, we won't bring you on. We'll bring you on externally as a partner, as a colleague. Uh, but we have to have your wife come on, too. Uh, who, who was seven months pregnant at the time yeah. so no one was going to hire her anyway so well and that's a great observation mark because and and especially on this channel you know we talk about buying and selling small businesses and one of the things i think that people often forget is the failure rate of startups is very very high yep. and for any business to be in a position that someone would want to buy it it already sets it apart as as exceptional so yeah. it's very true um and so again um you know, I'll put that up on the screen again, newbankingsolution.com. For anyone in the audience that wants to learn more about this idea, there's a few hours of videos over there, interviews with Mark and uh, a basic explainer 
um, sort of webinar that we did to kind of show how the concept works. But um, yeah, I hope you guys are all ready for Christmas. Yeah, we, you know, we are, um, we're building and growing. I think, you know, honestly, one more piece about Brandon's story, I think that just is encapsulates and really ties into what uh, you do and what you teach. There was a, a major flood in your coffee shop, Brandon. Did you mention that? And uh, no, I did not. How, I how did your bank on yourself policy come to save the day here? Uh, tell, tell us that story. Yeah. So most people, when they when they think about uh, assets, they think that it's going to be just to move them up and to the right. Uh, sometimes, you know, literally things happen. Uh, I remember this. This was part of. And I didn't know that my wife was pregnant at the time. We we were doing our thing. Uh, we we did what business owners should do: is we tried to take some time off and go to the gym. So we went to the gym, and then we got a call from one of my staff calling me on the treadmill. And I was like, I'm going to ignore it for a second uh, until I finish the thing. And then my uh, business, my, my, he called to my wife and called me and said, um, her, she said to her that, um, yeah, the, you need to come in. The store is falling apart right now. So literally the roof was off and it's freak storm and the, it flooded. Um, Literally, our wow. store apart, but because of our policy, we were able to overcome the flood because we, you know, didn't have income coming in, but we were able to uh, restore it and sell the business, not close the business because of having access to capital. Um, that was so important, having access to capital in the crap stuff and not just in the up and to the right stuff. Yeah, it was said earlier today that you know money money and time are the resources and if you don't have them you can't yeah. accomplish anything and that's it's one of the things that this can do for you yeah, yeah. well thank anyway. you so much for having us on no David, problem really guys happy holidays and merry christmas brandon thanks for sharing your story uh we'll see you guys later all right merry christmas all right bye-bye bye. oh we got we got someone else knocking at the door here who we got here we got uh we got mark and Rick, how you doing, guys? Hey, guys. Hey, Dave. Hey, Rick. Hey, Mark. I'm not very Christmassy, so I'm glad that Rick didn't wear like a Santa hat or anything. And, you know, Dave's got the bow, but uh, yeah. I decorated my whole office. <laughs> Mark, and I have a, I have a co-host this, this year. This is a, a little known reindeer. This is, a, a, well, he's made it, he's plaid and he's got an, uh, antlers, so he must be plaid uh, the impaler. <laughs> You don't yes. think that's funny? No, that's that's good. As a lover of dad jokes, I, I give it a passing grade. <laughs> so so we got Mark here from the Natural Born Coaches podcast, and we got my buddy Rick, uh, who is an owner of, uh, of many restaurants and cafes. We've already had a couple of people here today mention the cafe business, um, and, and I know you don't want to get into it again. Uh, another person who would tell people probably not to open one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so we're talking about everything that's going on in 2023 and what we're looking forward to in 2024. Uh, Rick, I promised everyone you were going to share a little story about your new business venture. Which one? Well, the how you kind of got back into food service in a new and different oh. way. Oh, yeah. Before I get into that, Dave, FCF, free cash flow. Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah free right. cash flow. Cool, yeah. cool. 
Uh, love the hat. Did you buy Thank it you. online or did you get it made? No, it was given to me when I was in Cleveland this uh, in September at a conference. So nice. they, they had some hats and I was like, that's the one I want. Right Absolutely. There. I love free cash flow too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and Mark, just so we know, um, you might not be very Christmassy, but you're looking very Santa Clausy. Yeah, that's right. There we go. <laughs> um, so Dave, uh, you want to know a little bit about my venture. Um, I don't know what you want to know. Well, I, I told every, I, I mentioned briefly in an email that um, you had uh, taken over the food service for a school district and you had been implementing some modern new technologies and some new tools to better manage things. And so I just, I wanted you maybe to share a little story about how that rollout is going and, and some of the things that you're learning as you're, as you're doing that. Why don't you tell us, you know, what the whole scenario is to start with? All right, sure. So I, I took over 20 six schools it's 23 cafeteria operations because some cafeterias have multiple schools attached to it um and uh it was basically everything was offline everything was uh, there was no there's no point of sale systems there's no there's no real in inventory management system uh no no real sales uh reporting besides using the old-fashioned casio register that you know, they use at flea markets, um, you know, really, really basic stuff. To create what, a Z report? Is, is that, was that what yeah. it was called? Yeah, yeah, I remember those. And, uh, and and so there was, and, you know, even even just capturing hours of staff working and it was all basically write it on a piece of paper. Here's what you worked. And, and there's just no checks and balances. So so one of the things that I, and, and obviously in our bigger schools, uh, like the high schools, we only had one debit terminal and uh, in 45 minutes, it's just, there's just too much of a bottleneck for those kids who are paying with debit cards or credit cards. So, so we implemented some technology right away into our five biggest schools uh, using just a square POS. And it has a, it has a timesheet module in it. And we've been playing around with that and testing it. Um, but it's definitely giving us a ton of more data and we're also, I've also asked that all the sales be reported daily. And so I built spreadsheets that capture our labor versus our sales and really seeing where our efficiencies are, or more importantly, our inefficiencies in labor. Um, so we're starting to get a handle on that. I really haven't done any, like in, in terms of the staff, I, have, I haven't really made any major changes. It was just understand what's going on, really get a feel for it. Uh, in the last week, oh my God, I've my eyes are bugged out right now. I've done a complete analysis of our purchasing, and it's probably taking me about fifty hours to do, but I've got it handled now. So I've created a um, a fence around what they can order, and and now we've built order guides, and they'll have to they'll have to specifically order certain things that I want them to order because you know a simple thing like shredded cheese. You can imagine how many SKUs at the distributor there is, but there's 20 plus. Yeah. And without any systems, they could order anyone they wanted. And some shredded cheese is better than others, whether it's matzo or 20% milk fat or so on. So there's just, it was just across the board, no controls, no systems in place. So I've been working on that like crazy. We're going to test an online ordering system in the new year with one school. And we'll, uh, as, as we learn how that's working and what's, you know, what the kinks are that I don't perceive right now, uh, we'll, we'll roll it out to five in February. And then by March, it'll be rolled out across the system. 
And and so the whole point of this technology is so that you can make better decisions with better information. But I'm just wondering, have you noticed any change now that people might understand that you're watching more closely? Not really. They don't they don't really understand what I'm up to. Okay. Um, even simple things like I've asked them to all send me a picture of their food every day and they don't do it. And I'm like, I really need a picture of your food. So a couple of people challenged me on it. Why do you need a picture? I'm like, well, I can't be in 26 schools every day and the menu changes every day. So it would take me six months to be in every school four times a day just to get all, just get an idea of what's going on. So I need to know where your portion controls are. And then if I see a problem, then we can address it together. And if I don't see a problem and you make great food, maybe your picture is going to be on my new recipe guide. <laughs> uh, and I will give you props because this came out of your school. So so you mean like a, a photo of a student's plate being served, like the tray being served? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So we're also building videos so for training mechanisms. Just I'm just e-mything the crap out of this thing and uh, just trying to make it as simple as possible. I, I learned really quickly because of the labor shortage and a lot of things that are going on these days, uh, we had hired some uh, some people from away. And there's, you know, certain things that you and I would take for granted and think, oh, well, this is, yeah, just make mashed potatoes. Well, in this case, and maybe it was a language barrier, they didn't know what mashed potatoes were. And, and so they served something that wasn't mashed potatoes. Now, is it because I'm sure they know what mashed potatoes are if they saw it, but for whatever reason, that's not what they understood to be mashed potatoes. So, so it's like, well, you know, we can build videos and take pictures and give them some type of a, of a benchmark to, to work towards. So that's, that's the thing I'm working on right now. And once it's my wife, I didn't said, when you get all this done, what are you going to do? Cause you'll have nothing left to do. It's like, well. Maybe that's where my fruits of labor come in. I, I work hard now and then I get paid free cash flow going forward. It's funny because earlier today we were, I was talking with a couple of the guests about remote workforces and how everything needs to be more accurately documented from the get-go. Yeah. And listening to you talk about all these different cafeteria locations that you are now managing and supervising, it, it's almost like you are running sort of a remote business. It's just the people are working together, but they're, they're all, you know, separated uh, across a, a space here. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of presentation, it doesn't have to be like a franchise, uh, you know, because there's no one one kid going to one school is not going to the other school to identify what the differences are. But from a management perspective, we want to make sure we maintain our food cost controls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm OK in terms of presentation as long as we're not over portioning. And, and Mark, how about you? How are things going uh, with your the coaches that you work with? I was just going to say that uh, Rick's restored my faith in government and bureaucracy because, you know, the, the, the <laughs> standard thought is government doesn't care about, you know, any of this stuff or running anything efficiently. So it warms my heart to hear that, oh, there's actually someone that's on the ball with us. Yeah. Well, no, they outsourced it. Dude, they outsourced it. I don't work for government. Yeah. Oh, okay. That explains it. <laughs> so so, yeah, it, it, it thing and and uh, it, another quick a quick thing. What's a, a popular energy drink? Is a prime that everyone's going on about uh, that all the kids are drinking. I have a friend who was stocking his son with a bunch of prime, and he was bringing it to school and like selling it on the black market and stuff like that. So you have to keep your eyes open for prime dealers, like you know, with the long trench coats. Uh, they they caught him, and he's not doing it anymore. So. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, the coaching world, is, it's funny because what's this uh, probably my fourth year on here, Dave? I think so, yeah. Got to be at least fourth. And uh, when you and I were chatting before, and, and I'm trying to think, okay, what's new? That My business and I think the coaching world stayed remarkably consistent uh, despite, you know, COVID and everything else. I mean, you see things pop up like AI and stuff like that. But overall, it's really the same uh, deal as usual, you know, the same uh, ways to be successful and so on. I have found it and speak with a lot of coaches every day. Um, the way the economy has been, uh, it's been a little more difficult. You can't expect to just slap up a sales page, send some cold traffic there and you're making a whole bunch of sales. Like it takes a little bit more elbow grease, uh, which is good because that weeds out people who aren't serious, you know, or just getting into the online space for get rich quick. So yeah, that's one uh, change I've noticed. I think overall that's probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, uh, your, um, your tagline, I mean, in the marketing that you do for your coaching program, uh, where you help coaches develop their business is to grow without paid traffic. Right. And yeah. So that that's not the, the crutch that people, uh, people will, would lean on. Right. Yeah. So, and I'm not knocking paid traffic because there's people who do very well with it. You know, you could do a hybrid or whatever, but I think too many people get into the online coaching space and maybe they have a severance from their corporate gig or they've got some money tucked away. And I've heard horror stories, 30, 40, $50,000 later, they're trying to shortcut it by uh, hiring uh, expensive funnel people, ads, everything else, ninja copywriters, bang, you could lose 50, 100,000 pretty quick you know, in the online space, uh, the advantage for building it up uh, organically without paid ads and stuff and hiring all these people is you have to roll up your sleeves and get practice on getting your message out there, writing your message. And uh, that that I didn't think that was a positive in 2014 when I started. Uh, but I now see that, hey, that was actually a good thing 10 years ago when I got rolling is it forced me to yeah get really good with that stuff. You know, um, yeah, I've spoken to many people over the years who had uh, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, they had a need for money. So they, they, their job ended or they became unemployed or, or what have you. And they're like, I need to get money. And, and, uh, they didn't have money to buy a business or anything like that. And so one of the usual go-to things for someone, if you've got a marketable skill or talent that you're able to do is you start some kind of solopreneur practice, business consulting firm, et cetera, where you go out there and you, you find people that can use your service and, and you, you do the work you're basically doing a job. Um, you know, you're technically in business, I guess, but you're you're going out there and you're you're finding one customer after another, and you're building this thing up. And one of the advantages of that is it it can be very low risk because you're just you're investing your time in in trying to do these things. But uh, to your point about people who've blown a lot of money, I, I've met people who tried to pursue that sort of business strategy and that, but they'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars on Google ads or, or you know whatever paid traffic it is um, without having any kind of clear understanding of what the customer's journey is going to be. You know, like if you're trying to sell consulting services or any kind, anything that has a, you know, if you're trying to sell something for $29.95, you can probably send a lot of cold traffic to that thing. And if someone says, yeah, I'd like to have that, they're just going to buy it. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a low price thing. But if you're trying to sell, you know, a thousand dollars worth of services to someone, they, that person needs to know, like, and trust you before they're going to be confident to open their wallet and, and spend some money with you. And so you really need to think about what sort of journey the potential prospective customer is going to take, what realizations or attitudes, opinions, et cetera, they're going to have to evolve before they're ready to engage you like that. 
And so, it, you know, kudos to what you're doing because I think you're helping a lot of people out of probably avoiding a lot of those mistakes. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'll have a good Christmas, guys. We'll see you later. No, no you're not getting away that easily. <laughs> I was going to say, what? What? Yeah. what? So uh, I've got some news. You guys want to see something cool? Sure. So I recently yeah. updated my tools and I upgraded to uh, allow myself to have a two-camera system. Wow. So it, it, it may appear as though I'm just invisible on one of these cameras, but I'm not. It's it's see, there's my hand. Mm. So I, I now have two cameras, and uh, one of the things that I want to do in 2024 is I want to get back to doing uh, the whiteboard videos again. And so I got a, a new camera that's set up so I can use that whiteboard that you see on the wall uh, to start to do some more whiteboard videos because no. there's actually been a lot of people asking for it. I'm curious, tech wise, uh, what what's uh, you know does matter brand make model? What are you using for the second one? For the camera? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's just it was it's it's like a forty dollar camera. Okay. Yeah, it's a USB camera webcam thing that plugs into my computer, but um, it's it's on an old fashioned spring loaded. Um, you know those those lamps on the spring loaded arms that you mm. can clamp onto a desk. Uh, I took the lamp off and I screwed the camera on it. There you go. So how are you going to do whiteboarding like with two cameras? You're just going to get up and go to the whiteboard and and go through it? Okay. Yeah. And then maybe edit out those little bits where I get up out of the chair and walk over. Okay. Oh, you can have the walkover like Mr. Dress Up. Oh, that's a good idea. I could make it a part of the whole thing. Absolutely. Like, let's go over to the whiteboard. Yeah. And I could I change the camera and everything like that. <laughs> we've got a whole bunch of people here that are sending uh holiday wishes anthony says just popped in to say hi and merry christmas hey anthony thanks for stopping Hello. by we've got um amosoft edi services says merry christmas and happy holidays thank you very much uh amosoft services we've got platinum text says seems i came late just saw david's post on linkedin now well, better late than never. Glad to have you in here, Platinum Tex. Kevin's in Central Florida, says good afternoon. Hey, Kevin, good to see you there. And Tom and Lindsay say cheerio from Yellowknife up at the top yeah. of the world, way up north. Good to see you guys. Thanks for stopping by, Tom and Lindsay. And uh, yeah, we've been having all kinds of great guests all afternoon. Do, were you guys watching it all earlier? A little no. bit. I caught. So... So some of the big themes that we've been talking about today have been remote work, generative AI. Um, like, what do you think are going to be the big themes for you, Mark, uh, for this year in coaching? Do you think any of these new technologies are going to be affecting people in that industry? Um, I mean, uh, I'll admit I, I was a little late to the AI bandwagon. You know, some people are really geeking out on it. I played around with it and did a bit with it, but I wasn't a huge AI guy. I'm just, when it comes to content creation and stuff like that, I like doing my, my thing. Um, I've started using it more, uh, for example, Zoom. Did you guys see the uh, AI summary now on the bottom uh, that you could click when you start doing a Zoom call? right on the toolbar at the bottom and i uh, it just came in the last week or two i believe and is it similar to otter similar um it's not a transcript it's it summarizes it so a few minutes after you're done your zoom call it would say um you know uh rick was talking about his new uh, venture in the new brunswick school system and dave has a new ca and uh, camera system set up and, and it's actually pretty accurate the, the ones that i've seen so 
Um, that's interesting because it allows you, I, I'm really big on notes. Like I love my Remarkable. This isn't sponsored by Remarkable today's show, by the way, but um, I do love uh, Remarkable. And I store all my uh, documents, every conversation I have, I'm taking notes there uh, with the tablet. And uh, that definitely helps like with podcast show notes, everything else that AI summary. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm embracing it, but I'm also not in the camp where some people I feel in the coaching world and elsewhere think, oh, that's great. I'm not going to have to create any content. I'll just rely on AI content. And you can just tell when people are, they, I see it in my Facebook group a lot. People, not a lot, but a fair bit where people post AI posts and you can tell it just reeks of AI and it's like, oh, come on. You know, so I say use AI to kind of get the, the creative juices flowing, but don't rely on it that much. I think that's a great point because I I was on a website the other day and all of the images were clearly generated from one of these AI tools. Mm -hmm. And and I started to read some of the articles and they just, you know how AI articles can sometimes go on and on and not really say all yeah. that? Like I, I started to read it and I was like, mm, yeah, it's, it's just like AI. regurgitated words knitted together kind of thing. Um, and so I, I think that... Um, I think that this could actually be good for people that make their living creating interesting things because because it, it, I think that there's going to be increasingly this volume of not quite remarkable stuff. It, what do you think? Oh, well, I don't Mark, if you want, you were talking about AI first and you've got more experience. So go ahead first. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, I'm, I don't know if we're there. I think AI is probably four or five years away of really having an impact. A lot of people are using it for different things. They're using it as a toy right now until it becomes a real tool. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think I, I look at AI and I, I'm late to the bandwagon. I friggin', I, I've tried using uh, Chat GTP a bit and looked at it and was like, it's not making my life easier. It's not making it funner. It's not making it better, so screw it. Let let somebody else figure it out. Didn't you hear the poems earlier? Oh, I've listen. I've done the poems. Make <laughs> give me poems in the in the spirit of Christmas and all these different things, yeah. and you know, and, and but from Axel 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 Rose's point of view, you know, and and it's yeah. like crazy funny stuff, but it's just a waste of time. It's entertainment, right? Absolutely. And. And so you, what you're talking about is you're talking about excitement and then pullback a little bit. And so here's a headline that I thought was very interesting that I saw earlier today when I was doing some research. In 2023, so, so sorry, in 22, Ford introduced a program for their dealers about uh, if they would be allowed to sell electric Ford vehicles. They had to sign up for this program that involved installing chargers and things like this at their, at their dealership. And so in uh, for the 2023 year, two thirds of dealers signed up saying, yeah, I want to be one of these electric Ford dealers. But for 2024, it's only half. So so the number of Ford dealers that are you know sort of getting on the bandwagon for this is, has been reduced quite significantly, I would say. Cool. And it's interesting because a year ago, uh, like I was driving a 2008 Grand Caravan uh, because I, it was all I could find during the years after uh, 2020 when the supply chain was all messed up. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the only vehicle I could find, and I knew I needed a new vehicle. And I was kind of waiting because in my mind, I thought I would really like to have uh, some kind of plug-in hybrid because I was really excited about the idea of having a vehicle I could plug in at home 
and 90% of my trips are so short that they would be covered by the electric battery, but then I would still have the gasoline engine to be able to go on longer trips. And I kind of waited, waited, waited for this ideal vehicle to come out and a couple of different vehicles hit the market that would sort of fit the bill, but I couldn't get them. And when they were available, they were like $30,000 more than the gas vehicle. And when I would run a cost benefit analysis, it was like, there's no way it makes sense. Like it, it's far cheaper for me just to open my wallet and pay buy for gas, buy gas all the time. And so I ended up buying a, uh, um, ended up buying a, a Cherokee, a Jeep Cherokee, uh, mm-hmm. which is great, right? And I've had it since June. Um, but I find that interesting, you know, and you're kind of describing the same sort of thing um, with uh, with this AI stuff. And, and I kind of agree. I made a video a couple of weeks about it, a weeks ago about it, where I, I don't really think it's quite the miraculous thing that everyone is trying to make it right now. No, not yet. Not yet. Give it some time. And maybe maybe somebody will ingeniously come up, you know, uh, Bard. I don't know if you've played around with Bard at all. I have not. But Chat GPT is the one that I've played around with a bit. Um, but it's like, now I'm going to say something that you guys are probably going to think I'm an idiot. It's like TikTok. What the F is TikTok? I don't, I don't know. What, what is TikTok? I've, I've heard of it. I don't care. I just yeah. don't care. Right now, and everywhere I go, everywhere I hear somebody talking about, oh, you've got to advertise on TikTok and every, all the kids are on TikTok and and anything that I've looked over my son's shoulder and what he's looking at, it's pure entertainment. It's complete waste of time. Is there an opportunity? Yes, because there's a ton of eyeballs on TikTok. But I thought I saw a TikTok of you twerking, um, Rick, there a few months ago. No, wasn't me, man. It was my dog. Was that was that AI that that put your your face on someone else? I, I deleted TikTok from my phone earlier this year, probably February, for a number of reasons. First, I, not that I know all social media probably does this to a certain extent, but I think TikTok rots your brain, makes you. Uh, less concentration, more dumb, you know, whatever. It's just, I, and, and then there's concerns um, with privacy data, the Chinese Communist Party. And again, I know all social media, there's a component of that, but TikTok's that on steroids. And uh, I just, uh, technically, I still have an account on there. I may have posted 10 things back when I was on it. And I'm just like, yeah, this isn't really my people um, anyways. I, I, although there's more business content uh, going on there i just and i never missed it but what i was finding because the average TikToker, i forget what it is it's like crazy it's like two or three hours a day at, at least um i was probably around 30 minutes but i was finding it like it was just starting to it, it's very good at knowing what you like and then feeding it back to you that those type of uh, videos or TikTok. do, do you remember yeah. the old 1980s tv series max headroom yep yeah and there was an episode in max headroom where advertisers were trying to get more commercial messages into the commercial breaks on TV. So they were playing the messages really fast. They called them blipverts. Mm. And and the the plot to the episode was that it was causing too much uh, like like adrenaline and stuff in people's brains and they were exploding. Wow. Was that before and, or after? And to me, to me, that's steps. that's what TikTok is. Yeah. It's just like it's this endorphin rush, quick hit you know, boom, 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 yeah. here's what you're going to see. Um, I actually recorded a few days ago the video that's coming out next week, which will be the video between Christmas and New Year's. And it's very much an anti-short-form um, video uh, message that I have. And, I, you know, and, and 
Uh, now is probably a great time to remind everyone that the I recorded the holiday chat calls already that are going to be released starting tomorrow. And I've got 13 people signed up, but only 12 people uh, have come in to do their recordings. So there's at least 12 of them. Most of them are an hour long, and they were all they're all very in-depth conversations about uh, people's real issues. You know, like like either they're buying a business or they want to get their business ready for sale, or they have some other kind of issue in their business. Uh, there was someone last year that called in who bought a business without properly accounting for the operating capital. And they called in like in crisis, like I need help. How am I going to survive this? Well, I gave them some pointers and they called back this year and they did survive. And they kind of tell the story of what happened and, and what they were able to do and how it worked out. It's a fantastic recording. And so, uh, you know, for people that are watching this, um, if you've lasted two hours and uh, 54 minutes into this live stream, then you're probably a fan of long form content and you're going to enjoy these holiday chat calls. And so if you want to get them, you can either wait until the summertime when I release them publicly, uh, or you can make sure you're on my email list at davidcbarnettlist.com. Uh, like I said, they start tomorrow and for 12 days in a row, we're going to have, uh, except for next Wednesday, there's a video that day for 12 days in a row, there's going to be uh, one of these recordings and there, some of them are super, they're all good, but some of them are exceptionally amazing. Cool. I'll check them out. I'm on your list. So, so Dave, I, I, I'm listening to your format and, and how you're talking about the different things that are coming up and what's already happened in this, in these calls today. And the format eerily reminds me of a 1980s Christmas telethon called Christmas daddies. And, you know, you're, you're bringing up, oh, Joe says this and Jim said this and he's in Central Florida. And and it's like, man, I'm in Christmas Daddies right now. The only thing that's missing is a dance in Santa Claus singing Jingle Bells. Like, you got to step up your game. You got to step up your game, Dave. Come Steve on. Murphy. Was that who hosted Steve Murphy? Uh, Steve Murphy or Nancy Regan or some one of those. Yeah. Yeah, let's start so, getting donations too. We'll get them to call in. Yeah. I'll make some predictions. I'll make some predictions. So within right. three years, we'll have an AI-generated dancing uh, polar bear. <laughs> In three years? I hope so. <laughs> Maybe it'll be three months. I don't know. But but it'll be coming. I, I think that's the next big thing. Like when, when people were talking about AI a year ago, um, people were making all kinds of predictions about what it was going to do. But now that we're seeing AI roll out, I got to tell you, I was probably... I was very surprised that I think one of the industries that's going to be the most affected by AI in the short term is going to be like the modeling industry because I, I've met several entrepreneurs now that have produced amazing looking advertisements with uh, like model type images of like people in these advertisements, yeah. uh, but no models were employed. Yeah. No, you photog know why no photographers were employed. One area I think we're going to see a big thing, and and I've read a couple articles on it, listened to a, a talk show on Sirius, uh, Michael Smirkanish had a guest on talk about it. It's with relationships, especially young men. There's all these apps now for AI girlfriends, and yeah. the guys are like, screw it. I'm not going to be dealing with the dating world. It's weighted against us. I'll have an AI girlfriend who's like my perfect girl. 
never fight, you know, has a perfect personality and they're just giving up on, on dating uh, with it. And they're getting more and more. Now I'm not there yet. This time next year, I might have an AI girlfriend. If I'm still single, I'll say, Hey guys, meet uh, candy here. You know, I'll bring her what, on. What was the exact URL uh, to find that? Uh, it's uh, well, I heard uh, Michael Smirkanish has a great um, show that's on daily. And that's where I first heard about it. And uh, he actually set up his own AI girlfriend as a test. And he was talking with the guest about it. Um, I'd never heard of it pre Michael Smirkanish. And I guess it's becoming a big thing, especially with young men. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, they don't have to get put themselves out there face rejection. They don't have to pay for dinners. They don't have to deal with all this stuff. Um, yeah. And I, I, this is about a year ago that I had read that they had to actually step it back because the relationship became too real. And then if something happened, the, um, the individual felt at a loss. Like when actually when the developer had changed the algorithm, um, so the, the, the AI girlfriend wasn't as real, like it wasn't the same relationship and it was almost like a loss of a girlfriend. Yeah. That's crazy. It is. What was that movie? There was a movie about it where a guy had a girlfriend that was almost like Siri or one of those. Um, I forget yeah. the name of it. I don't know anyone watching it probably knows. It was, it was like a couple of years ago. I, I seem to remember a couple of movies with yeah. similar kind of plots, but some of them involved sort of robots, you know, like that you could interact with. And maybe, like, I don't know, this 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 uh, artificial AI girlfriend, is it like just an app? Like she texts you all the time and what? Asks you to like, pick up milk it's it's on the apps literally on the app store yeah text you you could you message her good morning you know and then how's your day and all this stuff and you know some are probably better than others but uh i think in a couple years time as ai improves uh, the not saying the majority of people will be doing that but i think there'll be a lot of especially young men uh going that route wow well i i I hope that people don't end up doing that with the rest of their lives. I mean, there's a lot to be gained from getting out there and doing stuff in real life. Um, tonight, for instance, I intend to go out and have a few beer and start to celebrate the holiday cheer and and uh, kind of take it next week off. And so it's going to be very relaxing. And of course, uh, we get Christmas and Boxing Day, which is on Monday and Tuesday this year. And so next week's going to be a short week anyway. If you know, I will probably end up in front of this computer taking care of emails and stuff like that. As entrepreneurs are want to do, uh, it's hard sometimes not to work when you're excited about what you do every day. Agreed. And you're, and you're smoking a cigarette on Christmas Eve or a cigar. No, I don't do that. Who told Come you that? On. I read, I read your blogs, man, or your emails. Whiskey and a cigar on Christmas Eve. I get it. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, guys, thank you for coming by and thanks for wrapping up the end of the afternoon with me. It's great to see you both here online. And thanks for all the people that came in and joined us live and left comments and and all the people who um, are out there listening to the recording afterwards. I hope that everyone has a, a great holiday season and uh, they stay safe on New Year's Eve. Um, don't drink and drive and all that kind of stuff. Uh, want to have you in the audience again next year. Yeah, thanks for the invite, Dave. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Rick, good seeing you again. Absolutely. Same here, guys. All right. Well, I'll see you later. Thanks, everyone. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? 
easy. Go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.